Welcome back to another episode of the Off the X podcast. I am your host. My name is Cody. And tonight's episode, we have on former Diplomatic Security Service Special Agent Dylan Reagan. Dylan entered the DSS in 2006 and served in posts, uh, at posts in New York, Lagos, Nigeria, Istanbul, Turkey, Herat, Afghanistan, where he was involved in the defense of a consulate of the consulate against a complex terrorist attack. Uh, he ended his time overseas in Bratislava, Slovakia, and then became an 1811 with diplomatic security, where he served as the chief of the polygraph branch. Dylan is an amazing storyteller and adds a ton of nuance on the situations he was put in and the posts he served in. Uh, you are guaranteed to enjoy and get some value out of this experience. So sit back, listen in, and I'll catch you on the backside. Well, cool, man. So thanks for coming. Uh, and uh, I want to hear a little bit about, we talked about a little bit already, but I want to hear more about uh, your time in DS. So let's start with what you did before DS and then kind of take us into when you came on with BSAC and go from there. All right. Well, no, thanks, Cody. Sounds good. Um, so just getting started, uh, you know, so once again, you know, my name is Dylan Reagan. Um so, you know, one of the first things I learned when I went through an instructor class was people want to know, like, what's in it for me? You know, so I had a pretty uh, interesting, you know, 15 plus year period with DS. Um, you know, a little bit about my career. I served in four overseas tours, one domestic field office, three consulates, uh, including Herat, Afghanistan. I was an RSO for three years. Uh, after that, I was a polygraph examiner. I'm one of two people on the planet Earth who've been an RSO and a polygraph examiner. Um and, you know, after that, in 2021, uh, I left DS and uh, went to another agency as a special agent in charge. Uh, back in May, I got promoted. Now I'm deputy director. Um, so looking back, I think I've got a, a lot of good information. Um, I was one of the agents at the consulate in Herat when it was tacked almost exactly 10 years ago. Um, so I think I think this is worth people listening to. Um, so if that sounds interesting, I'll get started. Um so, you know, I grew up in, in Northwest Georgia, uh, a little town called Dalton. Uh, don't feel like anybody needs to go there unless they want to buy carpet or something. Um, but I uh, moved out, went to University of Georgia and uh, never, never saw myself in law enforcement. Um, but I uh, wanted to go to law school because I knew lawyers made a lot of money and I did not like being poor. Uh, but I graduated from uh, college. You need to figure out a way to pay for law school. So uh, I knew some people at the University of Georgia Police Department, and I got on with the campus PD, uh, went through the police academy 21 years ago. So this is actually this month is 21 years in law enforcement. Uh, and, you know, went through the academy, uh, worked uniform patrol, worked as a detective, uh, was on the special response team, went through Georgia's uh, SWAT training, uh, really enjoyed it, enjoyed being a detective, had a really good time. Uh, but it was a university. It was a campus environment. Uh, so I want to try. I want to try something a little bit different. So I went to a sheriff's office next door, uh, the Barrow County, Georgia Sheriff's Office, uh, and it was awesome. Um, I was on patrol for five months. I was uh, mostly midnight shift. Had a really good time. Uh, they put me in the SWAT team. It was the exact opposite of UGA SWAT team. UGA we trained two days a month, uh, but we never got called out at Barrow County. I actually, one of the Barrow County uh, months, I was driving to training and got diverted to a call out. 
Um, so we would we would have training canceled at Barrow County to do actual SWAT calls, which was pretty, pretty cool. Uh, and then after five months on patrol, uh, they made me an investigator. Uh, I was very fortunate with the timing of that. Uh, loved it. Loved the work. Loved what I was doing. Uh, made very little money. Um, I also, you know, as much as I love the organization, I mean, everybody was great. My sergeant, lieutenant, captain, deputy, you know, the chief deputy, the sheriff, everybody was awesome. Um, but I could not see myself spending 30 years in a 160 square mile county, right? So I was in a master's program at the University of Georgia, and uh, I found out about diplomatic security. Hey, the State Department has federal law enforcement. That's kind of crazy. Um, so they had an announcement in May of 05. I told my wife, she said, you know, go for it. It's not like they'll ever hire you. Um, and shockingly, eight months later, I started basic special agent training. So in January of 06, uh, I drove up to D.C. I actually stopped. Um, I quit the sheriff's office on a Thursday um, and packed up on Friday and started driving uh, and, you know, showed up at the foreign at uh, the Foreign Service Institute for specialist orientation on Monday. Um and I was basic special agent class 89. Uh, so we went through about 32 weeks of training. So we had three weeks of specialist orientation, uh, you know, introduction to the State Department, the Foreign Service. And we had a week of admin. Then we went down to uh, the Criminal Investigator Training Program at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. Uh, that was about 12 weeks. And then we came back and had 16 weeks of uh, DS add-on training. So everything from, you know, well, you know, you went through it, but it's criminal investigations, you know, protective security, uh, firearms, defensive tactics. Um, I actually thought a lot of it was really funny. You know, I remember the special skills branch instructors saying during the room entry training, they're like, this is the bare minimum that you need to go out and do your job safely. This does not make you a SWAT operator, right? As we're doing like, I forget what it was, like nine or 10 days of just room entry. And I'm like, my SWAT school in Georgia was 40 hours. <laughs> I mean, like what what we did in Georgia to be SWAT qualified was way less than like the bare minimum for DS. It was pretty, pretty funny. Um, Should have given me an idea of what was coming. But, uh, you know, so uh, early on in that, you know, you meet with your career uh, development officer or, you know, as some people like to say, your career destruction officer. And. You know, he took a look at me and, you know, the largest place I'd ever lived was Athens, Georgia, about 100,000 people. And he said, you know what? You'd be great in New York City. Um, so I went to a tour at the New York field office uh, and I actually loved it. Um, we lived in uh, New Jersey, had a nice commute to the field office, uh, loved the work. Uh, in New York, I did a lot of uh, protective security. Uh, it really is just kind of how it worked out. Um, I was assigned to a unit and my unit supervisor had just arrived from overseas. Uh, he had uh, just come back from being the RSO in Muscat, Oman. Uh, so we arrived around the same time, um, had a good relationship with him. Uh, the units there tended at that time to be anywhere from seven or eight to you know 13 or 14 agents, um, just depending upon the rotation cycle. So uh, while I was there, um, you, of course, worked some visa and passport fraud cases. Uh, I had one good case that turned into an arrest. Uh, it was a, it's actually really cool. It was a Dominican national uh, who'd been living for 16 years under an assumed Puerto Rican identity, 
But what made it so cool is that he actually got arrested and went to prison for heroin trafficking under the Puerto Rican identity. So you run as prince and he comes back to this Puerto Rican guy. Um, but when you actually talk to him about Puerto Rico, he didn't know anything. I mean, he couldn't tell you anything. I don't even think he knew that like San Juan was the capital. Um, knew nothing about the country, or, sorry, country. Knew nothing about, you know, Puerto Rico, about the territory. Um, couldn't tell you anything. Couldn't tell you where he was from, where he went to school. It was just, you know, clearly false. So after about two and a half or three hours of interviewing him, he finally just copped and said, yeah, I'm Dominican. Um, so we actually... I got that prosecuted, which was was not a common occurrence at New York. Um, usually we got a lot of declinations, but that was a good case. But most of what I worked was PRS. So I, I think I worked, um, I want to say I worked 18 details while I was there. Uh, lots of foreign ministers. Um, I worked a uh, detail for Prince Charles. Uh, let's see, uh, for the Russian patriarch. Uh, I posted, which this doesn't count as one of the details, but I posted on the Dalai Lama. Um, so it was, it, was, it was a good time. Um, so I'd been there for a while and they were looking for volunteers to go through the high threat tactical course. Uh, we had some NIFO agents who had gone through the training and had done TDY subsequently to Baghdad. Uh, sounded really interesting. Um, so I threw my name in the hat. Uh, then we had the UN General Assembly in 07. Um, and, and that actually, I'll, I'll touch on that for a second. Um, one of the neat things about diplomatic security, I mean, either neat or scary, depending on how you look at it, uh, is the amount of responsibility that you get. So to give you an idea, in 07, in uh, the UN General Assembly, I was the lead advance for the foreign minister of Iraq. Uh, so we had the president and the, the prime minister of Iraq. Uh, in New York City for the UN General Assembly as well. Um, it was the, let's see, I want to say the Prime Minister stayed in our hotel, but the President stayed elsewhere. The Secret Service lead advance agents for both of those details were GS-14s. Uh, one had just come from the President's protective detail, the other one had come from the Vice President's protective detail. So I was chatting with some of the Secret Service agents, and they're asking me, they're like, hey, so how long have you been at, at, uh, in New York? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm actually pretty new. Uh, I said, I've been here for 13 months. Uh, and they said, oh, OK, well, where were you before that? And I said, oh, I was in I was in training. And they said, oh, what part of training were you? And I said, oh, basic special agent training. And they said, oh, OK, cool. How So how long did you uh, did you teach basic, basic special agent training? And where were you before that? And I said, well, no, no, like I was in basic special agent training like I was a trainee and then I graduated they're like wait what they're like you you've like 13 months out of training and you're elite advance and I was like well, well yeah I'm I'm actually one of the more senior non-supervisory agents at the New York field office right now I'm like 13 months is like that's pretty salty in DS for a field office and you could just you could tell their minds were blown mm -hmm. um and it was it was just so funny you know uh, I I'd, I'd previously that summer, I'd worked another detail for the foreign minister. Uh, it, this was Hoshiar Zabari when he was the Iraqi foreign minister. Great guy. Um, so, you know, I knew him. I knew him. I knew his staff. Um, we had a really good time. Uh, he was a really good protectee. He really liked his security people. Uh, he would bring one Iraqi security guy with him. And um, it was like some movie where like, 
you'd see the guy check into the hotel and then he'd disappear. Um, and then like, you know, he'd show up two hours before departure and he'd be like wearing, you know, a Hawaiian shirt and like, you know, baggy shorts and he'd have a camera around his neck and he'd be trashed and, you know, he'd, he'd have like shopping bags and, you know, he'd, 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 he'd look like, you know, like a Marine had just come back from shore leave or something. Um, but, you know, the way he said it was, you know, his, his security guys put their lives on the line to protect him. So, you know, when they came to the U.S., he just cut him loose because, you know, he knew that he was safe with us. Um, well, that's so pretty was, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was always pretty cool. Um, we actually uh, and, and this this has uh, this will play in later. Um, he had a British personal assistant who worked for him, not for the foreign ministry. Um, and she was complaining to us that she never got to go out. Um, so a couple of the female agents in the detail uh, worked out a plan with her where we actually snuck her out of the Waldorf um, after everybody had gone to bed and we took her out to a nightclub uh, so she could go out dancing. And the whole like the whole detail, everybody who wasn't working uh, went with her. Um, well, she left her passport behind. So we actually badged her way into the nightclub. I mean, she was in she was in her early 30s. Um, and, you know, like she had a blast. And then, you know, we snuck her back to the hotel and got her in. I don't know that anyone on the Iraqi team actually ever learned that we took her out. Um, but she had a really good time. So, you know, UN General Assembly ends. And uh, now in October of 07, I start uh, high threat training. Um, but what had changed in September of 07, you had the shooting in Al-Nasur Square in Baghdad. So after that, uh, the State Department mandated that all of our motorcades uh, operating, transporting diplomatic personnel in Iraq had to have a diplomatic security agent in charge, right? So, you know, suddenly, you know, they've got this desperate need for agents to be able to go to Iraq and run these motorcades. Um, so high threat was about eight weeks long. Uh, it was really good. I mean, just awesome training. Um, we we did some really cool stuff. Um, we, uh, you know, in addition to the regular weapon stuff, we called on the M240, the M249. We called on the M203. Uh, we fammed the Modus, the Mark 19. Um, you know, we did a day long, uh, I call it land nav exercise, but it was, um, we went out with a motorcade. We got hit. Vehicles went down. We had to you know, break contact, escape and evade, do small unit link up. Uh, move to an HLZ, set up the HLZ, and then you'll call in Blackhawks, uh, actual Blackhawks for an extraction pickup. Um, really cool. Uh, we had the instructors as an op for the whole time trying to take us out. Uh, so it was it was a really, really cool uh, training class. Um, really good stuff. That finished up. And in December, um, with my wife, I think at the time about three months pregnant, um, of course, you know, I left for Baghdad and I got there, um, right before Christmas. Uh, so it was a really good time to arrive because the week of Christmas, they shut down all movements. Uh, so I had plenty of time to get in processed. Um, you know, so, and, and I'll, I'll throw out a plug for you, Cody. So I read your book, um, recommend it to anybody listening. I never had to take the rhino. Uh, my recommendation is arrive to post with somebody senior who knows you and bum a ride with them on the helicopters. 
Um, so I was able to hop on with a deputy RSO in the Bell 412s and, you know, had a, had a nice, um, nice flight over to the embassy. He got picked up by, uh, you know, a supervisor in a land cruiser. And I got picked up by a fellow NIFO agent in a gator. Um, and yeah, that's the way to do it. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt that's the way to do it. And I did that when I went there for a, a permanent tour for my, my my full year there. That's how we did it. I was actually, when I would get picked up, there'd be you know, one of the deputy RSOs from, that it was brand new. And I said, oh, come on, sir, I got you. You know, knowing that maybe he could get me someday, you know, and oh, so yeah. hooked him up, got him, took him back. You know, I had to have my, my team pick me up. You know, they didn't have to, but um, we were great relationship. And so uh, for him, it was first class service. And he, and he, and you know what? It's funny is I left when I left DS, uh, I went to a, a corporate sector job. I was doing security for a CEO and we went to Egypt and he happened to be the RSO in Egypt. And as soon as I exchanged the email with him, he's like, come see me. And, uh, and I got in, he gave me some coins. He gave me a tour of the embassy, you know, and, and I needed some, some, uh, I, I needed, needed to talk to him about some things basically. And, uh, and, uh, it was great. So that, that, that little favor that helicopter ride paid off oh yeah uh, no no it's good stuff um and just you know i got there i got assigned to uh, originally i got assigned to two blackwater teams uh ravens four and five and then they get another another tdy wire in so i was i was mainly with raven five um but uh you know i did some i did a couple of runs with low pro team i did a couple of runs with advanced teams uh worked a couple of code l's um got to run up to erbil and took some people to, you know, the little white house. Um, and that was actually really cool. So we're up there at the little white house and, uh, the U S government had just, um, basically it sat back and let the Kurds, uh, carry out some bombing in Northern or sorry, let the Turks, let the Turks carry out some bombing in Northern Iraq against the PKK. And the Kurds were not happy with us. Uh, so I was sitting with, I want to say it was the Dying Corps guys at the time. Um, and we're sitting there and they're supposed to be feeding us and they're not feeding us. Um, so they've got this um, this minder from the Kurdish uh, Ministry of Foreign Af Ministry of External Affairs. And uh, I go up to him and I'm like, hey, uh, so just out of curiosity, I've, I actually have done several protection details in New York for Hoshir uh, Zabari. And he's like, oh, the minister? I'm like, yeah, the minister. And I'm like, I'm supposed to meet up with lunch next week with his personal assistant. Um, I'm like, I can't wait to tell her, like, what a good job you guys have done at taking care of us. And he was like, oh, uh, I will be right back. And like 45 seconds later, people just start coming in with plates of food. And it was, it was pretty cool. Um, and, uh, and of course, the lunch wound up, uh, she wound up not being able to come meet me for like a meal at the embassy because the minister took his whole detail with him to Jordan um there's this is actually kind of funny because i guess she yelled at him and then refused to answer his phone but it was a little little funny but um yeah so i had a, had a really good time there you know we got some idf but nothing was crazy um you know we had a couple of incidents uh they were still trying to figure out how to document them um but all in all it was really good uh my team was awesome uh worked with great contractors um super professional my shift leader was awesome um I'd love to throw people's names out. I'm not going to, um, unless I know they're in they're they're out there uh, in the public domain. Um, but if any of them listen to this, uh, you guys were great. I learned a lot. You know, I was young. Yeah, I was this cop from Georgia. 
Uh, and here I am as an AIC running missions in Baghdad. Uh, when we didn't run, I trained with the teams. Uh, so we drive up to cross swords and we'd practice, you know, action zone contact, uh, cross loads, uh, room entry, how to do a uh, principal recovery and evacuation, um, all kinds of stuff. And it was really good. Uh, the low pro details were neat. Um, we actually had uh, one of the vehicles get jammed up at an Iraqi checkpoint uh, and they went guns up on it. Uh, and because we were running low pro, our vehicles would be usually a, a hundred to 200 meters apart. Um, so we were pulled over to the side and we thought we were going to have to like, um, you know, basically head back and, and get them out of trouble. Um, luckily, everything eventually got sorted, but it was just a very different animal, you know, than, than running with, you know, four Suburbans and maybe a, uh, you know, an upgunned uh, Humvee, you know, where you kind of like you own the road. Um, so it was a really good time. Uh, 45 days went really fast. Uh, but, uh, you know, went back to the States, um, started wrapping up my stuff while I was there. I got, uh, paneled for an assignment in Lagos, Nigeria, which was actually like people were fighting to get overseas. I think there were six or seven other, uh, bidders on the job. Um, so I was pretty pumped to get it. Um, so I get back. Uh, in an aside, the, the very last detail that I worked uh, at, um, well, the two last details, the last, one of the last details I worked at uh, NIFO uh, before I took leave for the, my daughter being born um, was the foreign minister of Iraq. Uh, so I told him I wasn't going to work it because, uh, you know, I was expecting my daughter to be born any day, but then they needed somebody to come in and cover for somebody for one day. So I went because it was just a day. Um, and when the foreign minister heard I was there, uh, we were at Saks Fifth Avenue at the Gentleman's Lounge and he called me up uh, and he's like, I understand you've just come back from a TDY to Iraq. And I said, oh, yes, sir. I was there from these dates to these dates. And he's like, well, here, sit down. Let's talk about it. Um, you know, so I spent like 20 or 30 minutes at, you know, the Gentleman's Lounge at Saks Fifth Avenue chatting about Iraqi politics with the foreign minister of Iraq. And, you know. It's just not something that anybody with another uh, federal agency is going to do. I mean, frankly, even like your foreign service officers, um, I, I mean, this would be the highlight of, you know, a senior foreign service officer's career, you know, having 30 minutes to chit chat with the foreign minister of Iraq. But, you know, here I am like a super junior DS agent. And just because I've worked a couple of details with him, he wanted to hear all about it. Um, it's just pretty cool. Um <clears throat> You know, go through uh, basic regional security officer school, 12 weeks long. And, you know, then uh, I go to Lagos, Nigeria. So my uh, long story short, um, you know, for some medical reasons, it turned out that uh, my wife and daughter couldn't join me for the tour in Nigeria. Uh, we didn't know that at first. Um, we thought they'd be able to come out once she got old enough to get the vaccines uh, but it just, that just wasn't in the cards. Um, she did eventually get medically cleared, but by that point, uh, things had gotten pretty bad there and we were a year into the tour. So we decided that they just stay in the States. Um, so I get to Lagos. I'm there from 2000, from August of 2008 to July of, uh, 2010. So it's a two-year assignment and it tells you something about the nature of West Africa that I did almost uh, about 10 months out of that two years as the acting regional security officer. So when I show up, it's me, a regional security officer, and an ARSO investigator. 
the ARISO investigators focusing mainly on consular fraud, uh, you know, you know, visa fraud, you know, issues with a lot of the applicants, you know, things going on down the consular section. So it's me and the RSO. Um, in December of 2008, we got a second regular traditional ARSO. So when he showed up, um, I had the Guard Force and the Marines, and he took surveillance detection and a couple of the other programs. Um, but everybody backed everybody else up. Um, so, you know, we had a pretty big contract Guard Force. Uh, we had a 90-plus member police contingent of uh, Nigerian mobile police officers. Uh, we ran our own 24-7 uh, police patrols that had our guards and police officers in them. Uh, we had them posted at the consulate. We had them posted at the consul general's residence, a couple other places. It's a pretty, pretty big operation. Um, a lot of stuff going on. And when I showed up, uh, things were pretty tense. There had been a home invasion of the Marine House uh, earlier that year, and one of the Marines had been shot. Uh, there had been a compound invasion of the Consul General's residence, actually two of them. Um, she wasn't living there at the time because the Consul General's residence was undergoing renovations. Uh, but two times they had people bust onto the compound, uh, armed people, and attempt to rob the place. Um, so, so everything was pretty tense. So, you know, so I show up and, you know, I'm trying to figure out my job. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. You know, so for people who don't know, you know, Lagos, Nigeria, it's it's like the New York City and Los Angeles combined of Nigeria. At the time, Nigeria had about 155 million people. Um, and we were importing 10% of our oil, the United States, from Nigeria. Uh, so it was it was very important to the US government, a lot of strategic importance. Uh, it's also the first, you know, my first time overseas working with the Foreign Agricultural Service, Foreign Agri uh, Commercial Service. You know, they're marketing U.S. products there. Like, you know, I helped the Agriculture Service go to a meeting where they convinced Nigerian farmers to buy American corn, you know, things like that, you know, helping find markets for American goods. Uh, but the biggest thing we did was working with the oil industry. So we had the largest and most active OSAC, Overseas Security Advisory Council, in the world at the time. Uh, we did weekly meetings, and they'd be attended by 40 to 50 people mostly from uh, the oil company uh, security departments. Um, you know, all the ABC companies, you know, Americans, the Brits, the Canadians, um, but we also representatives of some other companies, uh, shipping companies. And we had warlords in the Niger Delta. We had piracy. Uh, we had kidnappings. So there was a lot of stuff going on, um, you know, and it was it was really interesting. Um, Every so we lived on uh, two islands. Um, we lived on uh, Victoria Island or Ikoyi Island. I lived on Ikoyi. The consulate was on Victoria Island. Uh, if you lived on Ikoyi, the way that you got to work typically was you took a boat. Uh, so you would drive to the American guest quarters. You'd park in a parking lot that was secured by our guards. And then you'd hop on a shuttle boat and the boat would take you you know, two, three miles down the creek to the consulate boat dock. Uh, you'd jump off and you'd go in. Um, you'd work your work day. And, you know, the, nothing will boost your ego, like having a meeting. Like when we had the OSAC meetings, they'd be at the American guest quarters and having a boat to take just you to your meeting. And it was always pretty cool. Um, 
you know, so we take hey, Dylan, let me ask you what, yeah, what, why the boat was it was it too safe unsafe on the roads was or was it just congestion or, or was it because it was there's no bridge to get you to the other side you just had to so you know, what was the, you said you said down a down a stream or something so I'm just yep. kind of trying to picture it so we had um we had two bridges uh you know one of them was fairly safe the other one was a little dodgy um but there was a lot of traffic there was a lot of crime there were a lot of carjacking so at the time the whole time i was there uh, nigeria nigeria's rating for crime it was one of the highest crime posts in the world uh the ratings for crime for terrorism for political violence uh were all extremely high um so anything to minimize you know having people out on the road as targets uh was was good um, you know, the boats were also there. It was always an option in the event that we had to evacuate to another post. So that was another reason for having them. Um, and sometimes they would close down the bridges. And then the only way to get back and forth was by boat. Uh, so I want to say we had we had three boats. Um, you know, and so I've already mentioned, you know, so crime was really bad. Um, some of the things that happened while I was there, we had... Um, there was a, a Snake Island oil terminal. It was right across the bay from the consulate. Um, I'm trying to think of how to put it. Uh, you know, you can call them terrorists, uh, whatever, resistance fighters. Uh, but basically, one of the Nigerian warlords decided that he was going to get attention to his cause um, and try to get some payoffs by blowing up the oil terminal. Um I would say that my townhouse was about six kilometers from the side of the blast and it shook. Um, I mean, it was powerful. And that shut down a third of all oil exports from Nigeria until they could get it fixed. Uh, so it was a big deal. Um, you know, we actually had uh, the police would routinely set up checkpoints. Uh, we'd get threats. Uh, carjackers would go out and uh, they would they would follow cars. Um, they'd follow them into a compound or as you tried to turn, they would pull in behind you and block you in, jump out at gunpoint, pull people out. Um, I was at the uh, British uh, club one night when about 100 meters away, uh, somebody um, carjacked one of the uh, one of the expat Brits that lived there. And uh, his wife fought back, and unfortunately, they shot her and killed her right there. Um, but gunfire was so common that, you know, we're seeing the British club, and you hear one gunshot, and you literally don't think anything about it. Uh, I had I had both of my dogs with me in Lagos, and I would look at my dogs to tell whether it was fireworks or gunfire, uh, because they hated fireworks, but they didn't react at all to gunfire. So if the dogs were going crazy, it was fireworks. Um, if they were not going crazy, it was gunfire. Um, but the other ARSOs and I, we worked really hard to try to make people safe. Um, we actually, uh, especially the longer I was there and the more confident we got in doing business, uh, we were first responders. Um, so we would throw on vests, we would grab, uh, long guns and we would roll out to a neighborhood if there were reports of shots fired in the neighborhood. Uh, one of my, I'll say one of my fonder memories, our consular chief and our public diplomacy chief were a tandem couple. Um, and they were, they're fabulous people. I mean, they're just awesome people. Some of my favorite people there. And uh, so there's a report of gunfire in their neighborhood. So another agent and I, the other ARSO and I, 
uh, I picked him up in a car and we drove over there and uh, we pulled up outside the compound and, oh, I picked up the RSO at the time too. And uh, the RSO continued on to check another compound, the Marine house, while the other heiress and I went, went in and we cleared the compound uh, because as we pulled up, the gate was wide open to, uh, to their little housing compound. Uh, so we went in, cleared it, uh, made sure it was safe, called them inside. They were in their safe haven. Uh, every every house in the pool had to have a safe haven, you know, an area where they could lock, you know, for everybody who doesn't know what that is, you know, you lock and secure a door. And usually it might block off a room in your house, but usually it would block off like your top floor uh, so that you had a, a safe area uh, where you could sit and wait for help to get there if something bad happened. And my favorite quote was, um, oh gosh, I don't want to say names, um, but uh, it was, you know, he, he has to say, he said, come here, you have to see this. And oh, what is it, dear? It's Dylan. And he has a machine gun. Oh, then we're fine. It's just so funny, you know. Um, but just having people in the community know that if something bad happened, that you would come personally to make sure that everything was okay. I can't tell you how far that went to make people feel safe. Um, and I think word got around um, because in the whole two years that I was there, we didn't have anything targeting any of our houses. Uh, we had a uh, we had two compound invasions happen in Abuja in the capital. Uh, one of them was really bad. They killed a guard. Um, another one, they spent almost an hour trying to pound in the safe haven uh, for one of the senior officers' uh, residences uh, before they they finally just gave up and decided that somebody was going to eventually show up. Um, in Lagos, it that didn't happen. Um, you know, it was it, I think because we lived on islands, even though it's a city of twenty plus million people, everybody on those islands they knew us. They knew we were from the consulate. Um, they knew we were the security people, uh, and they knew that they would see us if something happened. Um, it didn't take a lot of incidents of us showing up for everybody to know. Um, and I think that kind of reaction, you know, really helped keep people safe. Um, but some of the other stuff I ran into, so I did not know there was a Cuban medical professional parole program. So we had this uh, Cuban doctor show up, an optometrist at the consulate, and tell us he wanted to go to the U.S. And I'm like, what in the world is going on here? Um he was on a Cuban medical assistance program to Nigeria. And, you know, the Cuban government at the time would send these medical professionals overseas on these assistance missions. But, you know, as soon as you land, they take your passport. You know, they send some of their secret police with them, you know, like they're watching everybody. Um, well, this guy and his brother went on missions at the same time. They didn't have any surviving family and they coordinated so that both of them walked into U.S. diplomatic facilities the same day. Um, so his brother walks into the U.S. Embassy in Kingston, Jamaica, and he comes to Lagos, Nigeria. I, you know, I checked with our consular chief, and sure enough, the State Department would issue transportation documents um, for any Cuban medical professionals, you know, seeking asylum in the U.S. because they were prohibited from uh, immigrating to the U.S. The Cuban government would not let them leave the country uh, because they were trained medical professionals. Uh, so we actually coordinated things and got this optometrist, uh, you know, to Miami where he met up with his brother. Uh, so I like to joke that, you know, somewhere, awesome. somewhere in Miami, there's an optometrist who'd probably treat me for free if I if I ran him down. <laughs> um, then uh, 
you know, we had, um, well, we had this one American get kidnapped, right? And uh, so he was an oil company expat, old crusty guy in his seventies, lived there forever. And like a lot of people who've lived somewhere for a long time, he knew better than everyone else. I'm going to go to this beach. I don't care what you say about it being safe. I've lived here for 30 years. It's safe. So he gets picked up. Um, so he gets picked up by one of the warlords. So they originally, they send in a ransom request and it's like $20 million, you know, because he works for one of the oil companies. And then they drop it to $2 million. And, you know, this old guy in the meantime, it's not his first rodeo. You know, he goes, hey, you know what? Like, I'm addicted to smoking. If I don't have my cigarettes, I'll go into withdrawal. And at my age, there's no telling what'll happen. And they're like, okay, well, we'll get you cigarettes. And then he said, look, I can't drink your water. Um, if I drink your water, I'll get sick. The only thing that I can drink that's safe is Heineken. So they're like, okay, we'll get you Heineken. So then he goes, I can't eat your food. Your food will upset my stomach and I'll get sick. Um, I can eat this one Nigerian fast food chain. It was basically like knockoff McDonald's. So they're like, okay. So by this point, they're having, they're giving him cigarettes, they're giving him beer, and they're going to go get him burgers and fries. Um, so he winds up getting released for like basically less money than it would have cost because we were trying to get travel documents put together and, and uh, basically get funds transferred so that we could go there with the FBI and, and help directly negotiate. Um, he was released for less money than our travel costs were going to be. Um, I mean, it was, they just, they just kept dropping it. He was such a pain. I mean, he, he just like made so many problems for them that finally they just cut him loose for like pocket change. Uh, so I thought it was. It's, they, so, someone should pick up that, that information and, and teach a course like that. <laughs> I know, right? Like a hostage survival yeah. course. Yeah. Step number one, ask for yeah. beer, cigarettes, and fast food. <laughs> um, be, be a pain in their ass. Yeah. Yeah. One. Uh, one thing that was was interesting, and you know, once again, you know, so I'm 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 still pretty junior. It's my first day or so tour, um, but every time the regional security officer leaves, uh, I'm being left in charge. Um, so I'm starting to get experience. I'm starting to figure things out. Um, so the regional security officer rotates. His replacement's not going to be there for three months, and we get threat information. Um, so you know, without going into too much detail, basically, there's a threat to any boats on the creek, okay? Well, the consul general and every section head, section and agency head, is at a tour of a new port facility. The port's on the other side of Lagos. It's about three hours by car. Um, they all got there by boat. So I basically have to put together an impromptu motorcade to go pick them up with a police escort and bring them back um, I also have to shut down the boats and then start organizing shuttles to get people home. And I have to do this without clearing it with anybody because the intelligence that I've got is so sensitive that we can't talk about it, you know, basically outside of a skiff. So I call the consul general and I say, ma'am, and she was awesome. She was fabulous. You, ma'am, here's what I'm doing. When you get back here, I can explain to you why I'm doing it. But until then, you're just going to have to go with it. And she's like, okay, Dylan, <laughs> do whatever you think you have to do. Um, and it was, it was honestly, I mean, everything worked out fine. Um, you know, we took care of everything. Nothing bad happened. We got everybody back safe and sound. Everybody got home that night. Um, and we were able to put into place some stuff to mitigate the risk 
uh, for the next day and going forward. Um, but it really just illustrates, you know, here I was at the time. I think when that happened, I had, oh, what I had like maybe three years with DS. Um, you know, I was the the equivalent. I was a, uh, oh, what was that? I was an FS4. You know, it's the equivalent, you know, for like a GS12. Um, and, you know, our consul general is senior foreign service. Our consular chief is senior foreign service. Um, our RSO who just left was an FS1, you know, a GS15 equivalent. And who's making the decisions? I am. Um, and that was the most sobering thing to me. I remember my first emergency action committee meeting, you know, the emergency action committee section and agency heads who get together and discuss anything uh, like threat related targeting the community. Um, so my first EAC, we had some threat information. We talked about it. Um, and after it got discussed, the consul general turned and said, all right, Dylan, what are we going to do? I looked around the room and here I am, this, you know, junior DS agent. And the next most junior person in the room, I want to say, was either like an FS2 or one of the uh, like DEA or FBI attaches who were 15s. You know, like everybody's a 15 equivalent, senior foreign service. Um, even our commercial attache was senior foreign service. And they're looking at me and they're like, what are we going to do? And it was really sobering, you know. Um, you just really get saddled with a lot of responsibility early. Um, you know, did some other cool stuff, took a trip to Bonnie Island. Uh, it's this natural gas terminal. It's massive. Flew in this little twin otter, you know, a couple thousand feet above the jungle, landed on an oil company owned um, runway, uh, went there with some people from DOD to talk about uh, radar installations, um, also met with people there at the island. Uh, they had their own compound run by one of the major oil companies. They had a nine-hole golf course. Uh, they also had a, an entire Nigerian battalion just to do security for the facility. Uh, the facility was more secure than any embassy or consulate I've ever worked in. Um, I mean, it was nice. Everything was forced entry ballistic resistant. I mean, they took things serious. And when you walked around, there were street signs, sidewalks nice houses, people riding bicycles around. It's pretty wild, um, especially when you consider that every boat coming in and out of there had a Nigerian naval escort, because at the time, that was one of the worst places on earth for piracy, even taking into account the coast of Somalia. I mean, it was it was pretty bad. Um, so it was cool stuff. Um, and speaking of the oil companies, you know, it was really neat. We had, um, so we had an American come in just some random guy who was working with an American company and he got picked up coming through customs uh, because he had some stuff in his uh, uh, in his customs shipment that he wasn't supposed to have with him. Um, he had he had like well, I say he had a firearm in there um, <clears throat> and you're not you're not supposed to have a firearm. So the uh, ambassador uh, tried to coordinate so that our consular officers could just go do a welfare check. You know, we're not going to intervene, but we want to make sure that he's getting fed. We want to make sure he's getting the, you know, the legal assistance that he needs, um, you know, as part of our American citizen services. Um, but we can't even get in to see him. So the ambassador reaches out to the Nigerian National Security Advisor. She reaches out to the, some of the presence advisors. So after about three days of trying, um, I talk to the consul general and I say, ma'am, do, do you want me to get somebody in there to see him? And she's like, well, Dylan, the, the ambassador's trying. And I'm like, I, I know that, but do you, do you want me to try? 
And she's like, yes, if there's something you think you can do, do it. All right. I called up the security director for ExxonMobil. And 24 hours later, we had a meeting set up. Um, he called an admiral with the Nigerian Navy. And the uh, admiral with the Nigerian Navy had him transferred into state security custody. State security being like a cross between the FBI and the CIA. So <clears throat> they transfer him to state security. And because it's state security, I went with the consular officer. So we go in there, we meet with the guy, we make sure he's getting everything he needs. Uh, we give him all the required consular information. They get him to sign some paperwork and we start getting him some assistance. Um, but it was just it was just so cool, the contacts that we had with the regional security office to get stuff done. Because um, you know, the pool that a lot of these oil companies have, you know, I mean, when you look at the amount of oil that's coming out uh, and you look at their uh, their agreements, um, you know, they've got great contacts and we had the ability to leverage them. Um, and it was all just through personal relationships that the regional security office had built up uh, just to get things done. Um, let me see. <clears throat> so one, having having done the TDY to Baghdad, um, one one theme that I saw a lot in my time with DS, um, there was a, a belief among some people, and I'll say this is probably a minority of foreign service officers, but I got the impression that they thought that somebody with a gun was somebody with a gun. You know, so basically, like, if you took a tier one U.S. operator, you know, if you took somebody from, you know, CAG or Delta or, you know, SEAL Team 6 or whatever, Naval Special Warfare, whatever you want to call it, and you put them next to a Nigerian mobile police officer, they're both people in uniform with guns. One equals one. Um, they saw them as functionally the same. Uh, so we had a deputy chief of mission who was complaining about a travel policy uh, because you had to have security in order to travel outside of the city of Lagos and to make these trips into the Niger Delta, where a lot of stuff was going on. And he said, you know what? I Before this, I was at uh, the embassy in Baghdad, and we were in a war zone, and we were able to travel safely, uh, but we can't do that here in Nigeria, and I don't understand why. And we tried to explain, well, it's because that we have military support, but we also have you know, highly trained and equipped contractors you know, to serve as personal security specialists to help facilitate that travel in a way that's safe um, so that we can get out and do engagement. Um, but he's like, well, why can't we just go with police officers? Well, because if you're not careful, they'll facilitate your kidnapping. Um, we actually had a regional security officer and a uh, an assistant legal attache go meet with a, uh, a, a state commissioner of police for one of the Nigerian states in the eastern side of the country. And he warned them, hey, when you go meet with my assistants, don't tell them which hotel you're staying in. Uh, I suspect one or more of them, one or both of them are cooperating with some of the kidnapping groups. So you probably shouldn't let them know uh, where you're staying tonight. Um, I mean, that was that was the environment. Um, so it was pretty rough. Um, then. Uh, so let's see. Um, so I'd been there for a while. A lot of stuff had happened. Um, it's May of 2010, and they announced that the president has died. Uh, so President Yardua, democratically elected, you know, he's dead. Um, 
<clears throat> this is an issue because they had at this time they had not had a successful peaceful democratic transition of power you know especially following the death of a democratically elected president so everything's locked down police are everywhere so i go into the consulate and ds wants to know they go hey we have to brief the secretary in a couple of hours um and you know keep in mind like this is before benghazi so it's going to be a minimum of 96 hours before we can get any military support to facilitate an evacuation. In the event that you have to evacuate, how will you get your people out of Lagos successfully? And we need to know in time to brief the secretary at 6 a.m. <laughs> I'm like, you know, like, don't ask me a question unless you want the answer. So I, you know, I told them, I said, okay, we, we have access to four boats. We can put this many people per boat, uh, which leaves us about, you know, 30 people short. Um, so there is a 40 meter yacht uh, parked at the oil company next door to the consulate. It belongs to a Nigerian billionaire. I was like, I've got a Marine security guard detachment and about half a dozen federal agents, and we will steal the yacht. And then we will use that and our other boats to transport the entire conflict community to Kotono, which is where we had an embassy there, U.S. Embassy Benin. And that, as far as I know, that's what got briefed up, you know, and I was really sad. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Because if, if we'd done it, um, oh, my God, if I could have been the guy who stole a yacht, it, oh, it would have been epic. Um I, but I don't want to be sad that there was actually like a peaceful transition of power to the vice president. That's a good thing. Um, but it was just really funny. Um, and it just goes to show you know, how quickly you have to be able to uh, transition when something pops up. Um, luckily, it all worked out. Everything was good to go. Um, while I was there, we also had a uh, an overseas building operations major renovation project. Um did a bunch of work on that with construction security, uh, which was going to come into play later on when I was in Herat. Um, but everything worked out. I guess I did a good enough job that after that, I got an assignment to U.S. Consulate General Istanbul, Turkey. Um, so I got to do 22 weeks of Turkish. Um, it was great. The language instructors at the Foreign Service Institute were fabulous. I didn't have any problem testing out with a 2-2 in Turkish after less than five months. And then I went to Istanbul and Istanbul was our favorite tour. You know, we did Lagos, uh, Istanbul. I did Herat, Afghanistan, Bratislava, and we really loved Istanbul. Uh, the travel was great. The food was awesome. I think over the course of the two years I was there, honestly, probably put on about 10 pounds. Um, it was just delicious food. Um, did a lot of protective security. Uh, Istanbul was very much on the map at the time. Uh, we had Syria cook off, uh, lots of friends of Syria meetings going on in Istanbul. Uh, I think Secretary Clinton came there five times uh, in the two years that I was there. Uh, we also had then Vice President Biden come out. Uh, and it was really neat to see what all goes into a VPOTUS visit. Um, lots of stuff going on. Uh, a lot of it was um, fairly routine. Uh, the secretary visits got uh, where we were pretty good at them. We also had a couple of other cabinet level visits. Uh, secretary of Commerce came out, Secretary of Energy. Um, so we got really good at them. Uh, lots of good experience. And it was a really good way to interact with a lot of the cops, especially in a, in a field setting.
Um, so a lot of lot of fun memories. Uh, you know, one of the secretary visits, uh, we had a Turkish, uh, the first one, we had a Turkish SWAT team tacked on to us. Um, but their SWAT, they call them uh, Ozel Harakat, which is special operations. Um, and they're like high speed dudes, like flying around in like Turkish little birds and fast roping down on stuff, you know. Um, but uh, really cool. Um, I went out and got some coffee and some little chocolates at one of the stops where we had some time. And I uh, came over and shared them with a couple of the Turkish uh, Ozel Harikat guys. Um, so, of course, like, because I gave them something, they have to give me something back. So one of the guys gets up and he goes and comes back with juice boxes, right? So I'm sitting on a park bench outside an Ottoman palace, um, sitting between these two guys wearing black BDUs with mini Uzis on friction rigs on their chest, sipping juice boxes. And it was just kind of funny. Um, or another time after that, we actually had the, uh, the prime minister's protection team took over all the security for uh, secretary Clinton's visits. Um, so another one, we're sitting outside of once again, an Ottoman palace, uh, the secretary's inside meeting with, uh, prime minister Erdogan and, um, I'm sitting in a GMC Yukon Denali, uh, Turkish follow car with these guys from the prime minister's protection team. And uh, Gatye, uh, somebody that I used to know, comes on the radio. So I'm sitting in the back. There's this guy to my right, and he's got his his little, you know, these like it's like the H and K version of an M4. And he's sitting there, and uh, everybody's you know, super serious. Um, and then somebody starts bouncing a little bit, uh, and then the guy next to me starts patting the buttstock of the M4 to the music. And then about 30 seconds later, we're all just busting out um, to the song. And it was one of those moments, it's raining outside. We're outside this Ottoman palace. I'm in this big protection detail. It was, it was pretty cool. Um, you know, the first visit, we actually had an IED discovered along one of the routes. Um, one of the others, we had protesters uh, charge uh, what they thought was the secretary's vehicle. Um, it turned out it was the vehicle I was in. Um, and they threw themselves against the uh, suburban door. And uh, it was really funny because I'd done all the meetings with the Turkish cops in advance of the visit. And the uh, Turkish one star in charge of their riot police was was right outside next to the motorcade. And I watched him do this flying tackle on the dude. And it was hilarious. Um, I mean, he took that guy down. And uh, so, you know, great relationship with the cops. Um we had we also had phenomenal local employed staff there. Uh, so there we we didn't have contract. We had contract guards in Lagos. We had direct hire guards at, uh, in Istanbul. They were fabulous. Um, I had, I think, out of 200 or so locally employed staff between the guards, surveillance detection and some of our drivers, uh, I supervised about 100. So I had about half of the local employed staff consulate. Um, I used to joke that the only people who actually knew what I did every day were the were the awesome ladies in HR, um, because I was always working with them on either hiring or firing or disciplining or awarding somebody. Um, and as an aside, uh, two, um, it, it was it was a really neat place, and the locals were were very friendly, and in a lot of ways, and I, I don't mean this in a bad way, but it was like working with Americans. Uh, in a lot of lot of ways, 
Um, you know, there a lot of the ones that worked at the cons. I mean, they're all pro-American. They identified very strongly with the U.S. And uh, two of the uh, U.S. employees uh, at the consulate wound up marrying women that worked at the consulate. Um, and uh, so, yeah, great place, really neat. Um, we also had lots of protests while I was there. Uh, none of them were really big. I think the biggest was about 300 people. Um, but, you know, they'd march around, they'd burn some flags. Um, you know, we'd stand by, we'd watch them, monitor them. Um, but the Turks always provided really good support. Um, so like I said, had a really good visit. Uh, it was a really good experience. I was acting RSO there for a couple of months. Um, I got to do some neat stuff. We actually, <clears throat> um, we hosted an iftar, a traditional breaking of the fast during Ramadan for the community of people that lived around the consulate. Um, so it was great from my perspective because it was both a public relations like home run, but it also helped our security. You know, we didn't, it wasn't for like big senior officials or anybody. It was for the average people that lived in the neighborhood around the consulate. And, you know, we brought in tons of food. We laid out tables. I think we fed 400 people. It was televised. Um, it ran on all the Turkish news stations. It was the first time a Western uh, diplomatic mission had hosted an iftar like this ever in Turkish history. Um, and from a security standpoint, you know, we've now shown our neighbors, the Turks that live around us, that we appreciate them. You know, if they see something suspicious, they see something that they don't like, they'll tell us, you know, because now they feel like we're friends because we've had them over and we've fed them. Um, and, and, and it worked really well. And then I was able to do this at my next post. So into my tour, it's January of 13. My family loves it. They love Istanbul. We have great housing. We love the city. My wife's working at the consulate. She's, she's got a good job. Um, she's crushing it. Uh, doesn't want to leave yet. Well, we can safe haven them in Istanbul, leave them there. Uh, my daughter goes to the same school. My wife keeps working at the consulate. If I do an Afghanistan, Iraq, or Pakistan tour. So I start bidding on Afghanistan and Iraq jobs. Um, and I wind up getting paneled into a job in Herat, Afghanistan. So <clears throat> I'm excited. I uh, go back to the States for high threat training because now it's been, what was it? It's been uh, six years since I went through high threat in 2007. So I'm, you know, I'm prepped, you know, I've been working out, been getting in shape, you know, high threat was pretty hardcore. And, uh, you know, I get back to the States and that's when I find out that high threat's been cut down to five weeks. Um, some of the super hardcore, like day long field exercises we did got knocked down to 45 minute PowerPoint sessions. Um, it was a very different training class, uh, but went through it and wound up getting to Afghanistan in March of 2013. So um, I get out there. I do my check-in at the uh, at the embassy in Kabul. I'm there for about a week. I uh, do a bunch of meetings with people and everything. And then I head out to Herat. Uh, so Herat is a city uh, the, in northwestern Afghanistan. The province has about a million, or it had, I don't know what it is now, but in 2013, it had about a million people. Uh, it's about 50 miles west of uh, the Iranian border, 50 or 55 miles south of the Turkmenistan border. And it's the biggest city in northwestern Afghanistan. Um, <clears throat> really neat region. 
a lot of Iranian influence. It was 500 miles uh, as the crow flies from Kabul. And that's how we got there. We flew uh, on Dash 8s or King Airs. Um, they every now and then would try to put together a uh, uh, put together a, like a motorcade to get vehicles or supplies to us, but they never made it. They'd always get blown up, burned, destroyed, robbed, hijacked. Um, I don't think we ever had a single uh, overland uh, motorcade reach us successfully. Um, so everything got flown in. So I fly in there and we land at uh, Harad Airport. Um, Harad Airport is next to Camp Arena. Camp Arena was the NATO base. At the time, the Italians were the battle space commanders in uh, Regional Command West, uh, which is the four west northwesternmost provinces in uh, Afghanistan. Um, so I land there, and a uh, you know a PSD, you know a personal security detail picks me up, and they take me to the consulate. So it's about twelve miles north to the consulate. The consulate is in an old converted hotel uh, on the northeastern uh, ring of the city. Um, just outside on the north side of the main highway running between uh, Afghanistan and Iran. Um, <clears throat> it's uh, basically like if you get a cell phone and you look at your cell phone, uh, the compound is two and a half acres and it's shaped like your cell phone. Um, there is a, uh, a wall. Turns out it was kind of a crummy wall, but there's a wall about halfway. You know, if you cut your cell phone in half, that's where the wall was. Um, on the inside of that, we had our actual consulate building, which was a converted hotel. Um, it's also where we parked some cars. Uh, then on the bottom half of what would be your cell phone on the other side of the wall, we had like a general services warehouse. Uh, we had a, a hardened structure that was an office for the contractors. Um, and we had some other little, you know, a bunch of Connex boxes for storage, uh, more vehicle parking. Uh, then we had our compound access control point. Um, our screening area for vehicles. Uh, and then on the very bottom of that, next to the road, we had like a slat fence, like an anti-climb type fence. You see it a lot of embassies and consulates. Uh, and we had two drop arm barriers. Uh, and that was where vehicles first pulled up to get, you know, to get checked, uh, to make sure that they had an actual appointment or a reason to be there before they were allowed in to be screened at our entry control point. Um, so that's kind of the layout. Two and a half acres, really small. Um, so I get in, uh, the consulate itself, the hotel is six stories above ground with a basement. Uh, so the first and the second floor were offices. Um, and then floors three, four, five, and six, uh, were where we lived. Uh, so I wound up in a room on the fifth floor and it was just a hotel room. Uh, but it wasn't bad at all. You know, I'd stayed in a, in a chew, a containerized housing unit in Kabul. And this was much nicer. I had like a queen size bed or, I mean, it was I had my own bathroom, you know, a little mini fridge, microwave, TV, like it was great. Um, you know, Wi-Fi throughout the building. Uh, and everybody knew that Herat was safe. Um, it was the safest place in Afghanistan. And I think, Cody, as you as you found with Erbil, about the worst thing that you can do is to talk about somewhere being the safest place in a war zone. Um, because sooner or later, you're going to get hit. So <clears throat> I get there. And, you know, not going to lie, things were a little tense. Uh, the relationship with a lot of the contractors wasn't great. Um, the relationship inside the office with some of the people wasn't great. Um, you know, the RSO had done a really good job of holding on to things. You know, we had a lot of assets. 
Uh, we had about 45 cleared American security contractors. Um, they did everything from staff positions in our tactical operations center uh, to, you know, serve as our compound emergency response team and our designated defensive marksman on the roof to staffing up our PSDs when we did movements, as well as the PSD for the console. Um, we had about 120 or so armed third country national guards. Uh, all of them were pretty much from either Peru, El Salvador, or Colombia. Did not expect to go to Afghanistan and have to brush up on Spanish, um, but but I did. Um, and then we had about 40 or 45 uh, unarmed uh, Afghan contractors um, who basically did a lot of the screening and a lot of the stuff down at the uh, the first drop arm barriers. Um, some of them served as interpreters and would go out with our motorcades and also serve as interpreters there at the, at the compound. Um, we also had canines. Uh, so it was my first time actually managing dedicated canine assets. So we had uh, six canines, seven handlers, or six handlers and a kennel master. Um, and they were all awesome. Um, great experience working with the canines. They were fabulous. Love them. Uh, just literally love them to death. Um, so, you know, first thing I do is sit around, you know, meet people. We had a TDYer there. The TDYer when I arrived was awesome. He was doing good stuff. He was the only one out of the RSO staff who was going out on uh, PSDs. Uh, we also had two security protective specialists. Um, they've since phased that out. Uh, but um, both of those guys wound up becoming DS agents um, after the fact. Uh, really good dudes. Well, one of them was later. The the one who was there when I showed up, one of them, uh, he wound up uh, leaving to do something else. Um, but anyway, so we got these two SPS. So the two SPS and the TDYer were the only ones going out with the PSD. So I talked to the RSO and I say, hey, you know, like I want to get to know the area. So I'd like to go out and AIC some of the moves. So he said, you know, sure. So I started going out with the teams. Uh, it was a unique environment because we actually had self-drive at the time. So if you were a foreign service officer, uh, you could do a motor pool request and hop in an armored vehicle with an Afghan driver. And if it was inside the city limits um, and there was no concerning threat reporting with the venue or anything else, like you get cleared to go. Uh, we all had personal tracking locators. So you would call out your PTL and make sure you were on the board and being tracked. And then you just go to your meeting and then come back. Um, and under our travel policy at the time, if you were armed law enforcement, you could self-drive. Um, so we always tried to use the buddy system, but with our staffing, it didn't always work out like that. Um, so there were times that, you know, like, you know, we had, uh, we also had a U.S. forces Afghanistan base uh, called Camp Stone. It was about 20 miles to the south. So I'd have to go down there for regular meetings. Um, so sometimes I'd just hop into a Toyota Hilux or a Land Cruiser and I'd drive down there by myself. Um, I had my little, uh, my little, uh, GPS that I got issued in high threat and it tracked every time I drove. And in the first six months I was there, I drove over 2000 kilometers. Um, I mean, just driving around the city. Um, I tried to vary my routes so that if I went one way, I came back a different way, really to make sure that I really knew the city well. Um, see also the contractor camp, we had a contractor camp. It was not connected to us. It was 1500 meters to the West. So here we are, northeast of the city. Contractor camp is not quite a mile to the west. NATO base is 12 miles to the south. And the U.S. Forces base is another eight miles south of that. Um, so we are the only diplomatic facility in Afghanistan 
that is completely independent of anybody, the military. I mean, we're not co-located with the military. We're not co-located with the contractors. It is just us. Um, you know, so I start working with the contractors a lot. Um, and I didn't know any of them from my time in Baghdad, but it turns out that, um, I guess I'd made an impression in Baghdad because my shift leader had helped train some of the uh, shift leaders that we had in Herat, and uh, he told stories about me, um, about like their first DS agent that they had assigned to him. Um, you know, so, I mean, you know how it is in that environment. Um, if, if people know who you are or can, can check you out with a friend, um, it makes things a lot better. So, you know, I established my bona fides pretty fast. Um, and, you know, we had a moment where uh, one of the teams led by an SPS was out on a move and some stuff happened and they couldn't get a hold of the RSO, but they got a hold of me. Um, and I made a call, um, told them what to do. And uh, when they got back there, the RSO kind of lit into them a little bit. And I said, hey, I told them to do it. And the RSO said, well, why'd you tell them to do that? And I said, here's why. And he said, OK, no problem. And just I mean. He was fine just as long as somebody had approved it and, you know, they could articulate why they did it. Um, and that kind of helped um, establish, I guess I'd say, my bona fides with the guys, you know, because it was the first time where, you know, I told them to do something, got called on it. And I said, hey, yeah, I told them to do it. Um, you know, and I'd tell them, I'm like, hey, if I tell you to do something, and you want me to back it up with an email, I will send you an email. Um, you know, I, you know, like, that's my job. You know, my job is to help you guys do your jobs, and I, I'm happy getting yelled at um, as long as it helps you guys do your jobs safely. Um, so had a good relationship with them, got to see a lot of the city, um, did a lot of stuff. We had a meeting. Uh, we had actually had an audit from State OI, the Office of the Inspector General. An audit team came out um, and looked into our contract. Uh, they said, you know, hey, you guys have got... Um, uh, let's see, what was it we had at the time? Um, you guys have got uh, four Americans on the roof, four American contractors, 24-7, and that costs a lot of money. And I said, look, I said, the White House, how many times are you aware of a sniper on the roof of the White House shooting somebody? Well, well, never. Like, okay, never. Like, do you think those snipers should be some of the most trained in, you know, American law enforcement? Or should it just be like an 18-year-old with a rifle that they've only shot a few times? And they're like, no, no, they need to be seriously trained. I'm like, okay, well, this is the only U.S. diplomatic facility operating, you know, with no external support in Afghanistan. Do we want really squared away, highly trained people, you know, or do we want, you know, third country nationals with a belt fed? And they're like, okay, you, you've got a good point. So they were coming after our support. They were trying to get our compound emergency response team reduced. When the RSO, and it was Matt Perlman, um, his name's been thrown out there a lot, including on a recent podcast from Diplomatic Security. So I'll, I'll throw out their names. Um, Matt Perlman, when he showed up, they had, I think it was three uh, third country national uh, contractors on the emergency response team. And by the time he left, it was six Americans. Um, and those, those guys and the guys on the roof are what saved our butts. Um, when we got hit on September 13th, 2013. Um, so it's May, uh, Matt Perlman leaves, new RSO comes in, Paul Davies. Um, 
you know, he comes in, he takes a look at things and he wants to mix things up. Uh, he'd previously been an RSO in Basra. Um, and he really wants to take a look at our security profile. He got to be very forward leaning. Um, he rolled out a completely new way of doing the protective security missions uh, so that if our contractors weren't busy, didn't have a lot going on, we would stand up different teams and we had different profiles. So like if we had gone to one ministry several times in a week, and by we, I just mean like foreign service officers with an Afghan driver, we'd tag two cars to follow them and they'd just hang out outside the venue. Wouldn't run a protection team. They'd just be on standby in case something happened. Or in some cases, I and one contractor would drive people if we were available or one of our SPSs or one of the other ARSOs. Because the other thing Paul did was he said, hey, all the ARSOs should be going out on these protection missions. All of you need to see the AOR. You Because know, for me, what does the street look like? You know, you need to know what the street looks like, what normal is, so that if you roll down and you turn a corner one day on a motorcade and things look different, you can spot it. You know, you can tell when things look out of place. If you don't know what the place looks like to begin with, you got no way to know what looks out of place. So he starts, people start going out. Um, he plans uh, some really good drills. We did a lot of compound defense drills. Um, we did a uh, medevac drill where we actually brought in the, uh, the U.S. Army uh, medevac unit that was at the NATO base. They flew in. We practiced hot loads and cold loads. Um, with actual stretchers, um, loading people on and off of the helos. Uh, so it was really good. It got good coordination with the National Guard unit that was manning the helicopters. Um, it gave us practice bringing them into our compound. Uh, we also were running one hour a week of medical training for all of the diplomatic staff at the consulate. So on any given day, we had about 35 to 40 Americans uh, actually sleeping every night at the consulate. Um, you know, out of those, you had uh, four, you know, three RSOs, an RSO, two SPS. We also had a SIGAR, Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction, special agent. And then we had a Border Patrol attache who was a Border Patrol agent. Um, those two guys were also really good, really squared away, really helpful. Um, but everybody else was, you know, I mean, a civilian pretty much, uh, you know, I mean, you know, State Department, U.S. Agency for National Development, uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture, um, you know, so they're doing one hour mandatory medical training every Saturday. Um, and the consul fully supported us and told everybody they had to do it. So everybody's getting the training. So we're getting trained up. We're doing good protection stuff. But Paul's also working really hard to facilitate all of the meetings and travel that the diplomats there want to do. Um, we're taking people out. There was a regional training center. It had been a no-go zone after a uh, after a shooting uh, that killed a CBP contractor. Um, I went back out there, reestablished ties, and then we got them tied in with the anti-terrorism assistance program. Um, and we started sending people from the province to Kabul for training. Um, we're doing really good stuff. We hosted an iftar, just like we did in Istanbul. We did one in an off-site venue. Um, it was the Afghan like Independent Human Rights Commission. Uh, we went in, took over their compound, and hosted almost a hundred members of like civil society, NGOs, businesses, uh, to a big dinner party. Um, had it secured with contractors on the interior 
And then we had about 30 Afghan police on the exterior. Um, we had the Afghan police doing the security screening. Everything worked great. It was the only off compound event like that that we had in the entire 13 months that I was there. Uh, everybody loved it. Um, we were doing really good stuff, good meetings, good ties, great relationship with the provincial governor. Uh, I mean, to the extent that we were doing business in in northwest Afghanistan, we're really getting stuff done. Um, you know, so September 11th is coming up. Uh, we had a visit actually by and I didn't know this was a thing, but by archaeologists from the secretary's office who were focused on historic preservation. And they came out like September 7th and 8th and 9th or something like that. And we, I got to take them out to all of these historic sites in Herat, um, including the Herat Citadel. Uh, but basically, so they could take a bunch of pictures and document the status of, uh, of, of these historic sites. So really cool. Um, so we're doing neat stuff. It's fun. We're getting out. You can drive yourself. I even did a meeting with one of my teams, one of the other ARSOs and I. Uh, went out and took one of our teams out for an iftar dinner. Uh, basically, rented out this uh, Afghan restaurant in town, and you know, fed them. It was it was a lot of fun. Um, so we're in Afghanistan. It's a war zone, and we're doing cool stuff. Oh, before I get to the attack, we had a congressional delegation visit in May. It was actually on my birthday. Um, it was pretty cool. Six female members of Congress: um, Tammy Duckworth, who's now a senator. Christy Nome, who's now a governor, and then Martha Roby, Susan Davis, Nikki Songus, and Jamie Herrera Butler. Um, so they come out to to Herat. It's the only Codel to come out there, and uh, you know we showed them around, took them to Herat University, took them to meetings. Uh, it it was really cool. Uh, they were very interested, asked really good questions, um, bipartisan Republicans, Democrats. Um, you know, the, the people that were in office, Tammy Duckworth was super cool. Uh, Christy Nome, super cool. Um, and you know, we were able to facilitate that and it was really neat. Did some cool stuff on the motorcades. Um, you know, like we worked a deal with some of the special ops guys from, uh, the special operations task force to provide overhead cover with, uh, ISR with, uh, drones and, you know, duct tape and chem lights, uh, IR chem lights at the tops of the vehicles so they can follow us and, you know, stuff like that um, worked out really well. So we're doing neat stuff, doing fun things, enabling diplomacy, all those awesome things. Um, so we get this archaeological team, you know, back to Kabul and uh, it's September 10th. Now, you got to understand, this is a year after the Benghazi attack. Everybody is expecting us to get hit. By us, I mean the U.S. government. We don't know where they're going to hit us, um, but everywhere remotely shady around the world was expecting to get hit on September 11th, 2013. Um, everybody, you know, I mean, were there threat streams? Well, it's kind of stupid um, because when you're somewhere like Afghanistan or Iraq, there's always a threat stream. You know, I used to joke that, you know, you could put your little finger to your head and go, OK, so right now in um, Paktika province, there is a black or white Toyota Surf VBID. Well, how do I know that? Because there's always a freaking VBID, and it's probably a Toyota Surf. And the two most popular colors are black and white. So, you know, there's always a VBIED out there. You know, like it's Afghanistan, and it's a day that ends in Y. You might get hit. Um, so everybody's expecting us to get hit. We actually got in a shipment of belt feds. Um, we got a couple extra M240s, M249s. 
So we picked him up. They'd gotten a limited technical inspection and we went around the consulate and we emplaced them and we handed out some extra ammo. We made sure that everybody was ready. We had an agent uh, wake in our talk on midnight shift um, so that we ensured there was an agent in our tactical operations center 24 seven. Um, and like we were ready to go. And in addition to the regular drills that we did, uh, one of the things that Paul implemented that I thought was really good, every time somebody arrived or left on the security team, we did a walkthrough. Um, so we wouldn't necessarily do a full drill, but we would do a walkthrough. So in this case, the senior ARSO had gone on R&R. So since he was gone, I was the next up in seniority. So I was the acting deputy, although we really didn't have a deputy. So the RSO would go to the Tactical Operations Center. I would go to uh, Post 1. Of course, we didn't have Marines, so Post 1 was staffed by an American contractor. So I'd go to Post 1. Our ARSO, who worked with uh, the contract, uh, the guard force and the, the contractors, he would go out into uh, go out into the compound with the contractors. Um, we, had a we had a TD wire from Kabul. He would marry up with one of the SPS um, and the uh, the two other armed agents, the Border Patrol guy and the cigar agent, and they would start at the top of the building on the sixth floor and clear down. So they would clear every room to make sure that everybody had evacuated and made it to the safe haven. Um, so that was basically our actions on contact, you know, and we we walked, we did a walk through every time somebody left or somebody new came in. So everybody knew exactly what to do if we got hit. Uh, we trained it. We'd run it with the contractors. Um, we'd gotten the entire community involved. So everybody knew what to do. So September 11th comes, run pins and needles, nothing happens. September 12th comes and we're like, okay, great. Nothing happened. Uh, we were celebrating two birthdays at the consulate, including the consuls. And then she was about to leave because uh, it was the end of her tour. So they did a birthday party that night. Uh, most of us were tired. So we went to bed early because uh, we were worn out from staying up. And Friday was the best day of the week. We used to say we had the best brunch in Afghanistan. Um, and it was, you know, it's the best day, you know, like we, they, they'd always make uh, tons of awesome food. You'd get like chili quiches, French toast. There might be pizza. It was just awesome. Um, so, you know, you go to bed 532 in the morning. Um, I get woken up. Uh, about a 2,500 pound uh, truck bomb detonates uh, about 110 yards, maybe 115 yards from where I'm sleeping. Um, blows me out of bed. I bounce off the wall, uh, land in some glass. Um, we've got these ballistic shields on the insides of our balcony doors. And yet it's a hotel, so every room is balcony, of course. So they put these little like ballistic shields um, but, you know, glass still blows in. So I land in some glass, don't even notice, you know, grab my pants, um, throw on clothes. And we had pre-staged weapons and body armor uh, in the rooms for those of us who were armed. Um, and it, it's going to sound stupid. Um, so I remember I had, uh, you know, I was wearing A solos that had like speed laces. I remember thinking these aren't very speedy. and. Um, you know, I was a little out of it and I stayed out of it for a while, but um, I heard these noises and I'm like, what are those noises? And as I'm lacing my boots, I realized that it's rounds punching through the wall of my room. 
And I'm like, God, I hope I don't get shot while I'm lacing my boots that are not speedy. Um, so get my boots on and I grab my rifle and, uh, you know, throw on my plates and grab my chest rig and I run downstairs, uh, run into the GSO. Um, he's looking in rooms. I tell him, get, get himself to the safe haven. Um, as I'm running downstairs, I hear come out over the radio uh, that they've spotted uh, some uh, machine gun positions in an apartment building across the street. So I get on the radio and you know, I say, hey, it's Aeroso Reagan, um, your deadly force is authorized. If you can identify where the fire is coming from, engage, take it out. Um, <clears throat> I get downstairs uh, and I go in to um, our post one and we had an awesome dude down there. Um, I won't say his name. He's awesome. We're Facebook friends. Um, really good dude. And uh, he goes, uh, and I go, you know, what's up? And he goes, uh, you know, and, and, and this has to be good. He's, he goes, uh, uh, Mr. Dillon, he, he goes, um, <clears throat> Mr. Dillon, our cameras are out. Um, I can't see what's going on. Uh, we've got leaks. Some of the power's out. The alarm's going off. Uh, we're taking heavy fire. We got guys inside the compound. Uh, and just ev everything's going on. And I, I, and he goes, I haven't, I haven't started a cron log yet. Uh, he, he goes, I'm, I'm not sure what, what I'm supposed to be doing. And I don't remember this, but it's what he told me. He tells me that I slapped on the back and I said, don't worry about it because everything's fucked anyway. And, and then I, and, he, and I said, first things first, let's cut that alarm off. And he said, Roger that Mr. Dillon. And he cuts the alarm off. I drank a gallon of water because I'd sucked up Lord knows how much dust um, that was floating around in the air. Um, I grabbed my, uh, my at some point I grabbed my actual like really nice gear, which was in the office and threw it on. But uh, we had some uh, some Afghan uh, local guards that had made it into the lobby. So I got them in, uh, put them in there and really it was just trying to figure out what was going on. Um, <clears throat> you know, went and secured the doors. Um, tried to get accountability for our people. Um, I turned around and we had these rear loading dock doors that were forced entry ballistic resistant. Well, the thing is you can open those doors all day long and you don't actually know how well they were installed uh, until they take like a 2,500 pound V-bid. And it turned out they were not installed very well because one of them was, was falling out. Um, so the rear is like totally wide open to the building. So the hard line's wide open. Um, so one of the TDY agent comes up and I grab a 249 from our office and I give it to him and I'm like, Hey, I need you to hold this and watch this opening. Um, and uh, I get the cigar and the border patrol agent and I have them watch down the hallway. Um, cause those are other, are other, uh, external doors to make sure that those are secure. Um, so we got everything locked up. Um, we get the, uh, we've got four casualties amongst our third country national guards, um, we get them in, um, and down to, uh, so the safe haven is right next to our tactical operations center. We had just gotten in like two weeks earlier, a foreign service health practitioner who was a former 18 Delta special forces medic. Um, awesome dude, perfect timing. And, you know, I talked about that one hour of medical training everybody was doing Well, you got one medic and you got four casualties all with gunshot wounds, you know? So what does he do? He triages. Um, he grabs people and gives them jobs. Um, we had somebody from uh, USAID, uh, somebody else from agriculture, the public affairs officer, and they are packing wounds. 
And he's standing over him and he's going, all right, you do this, you do this, you do this. Um, because he's busy and we're busy. Um, so he had, he had them down packing wounds and, uh, putting on tourniquets. And I mean, it was, it was good to go. Um, you know, we, uh, we took pretty good fire. Um, I went outside and hooked up with our other ARSO. Uh, we, we didn't have good radio comms. We found out after the fact that the very first RPG that got launched at us, um, hit the roof. And in one of those, like, you know, chaos of battle things that could never happen if planned, it punched right through the repeater line. So the repeater was out for the radios. Um, I mean, it's like one of those one in a million shots. Um, so that first 2,500 pound V-Big goes off. Well, we figure out two minutes later, this truck pulls up, or sorry, not truck, van. So a van pulls up and disgorges uh, seven attackers, right? And they hand out these assault packs um and you know they're they're chalk talking a plan when one of them who and i was not aware of the meme at the time but i later learned about the leroy jenkins meme um one of them goes uh all right guys let's do this leroy jenkins and he takes off and the other guys are just like oh man come on they're like all right let's follow him um so he is way ahead of everybody else and he is just booking it right because he has got some jihad that he is going to bring right to us. Um, and he is a coming because we have been knocked on our butts by a 2,500 pound V-bid and they're going to finish us off. You know, they have come loaded for bear and they're going to have us for dinner. Um, so the little honey badger runs, runs through our screening area. Um, the uh, man trap gates have been blown down. So he ducks through, comes up and turns around. Yeah, guys, follow me. And takes like literally two steps, not knowing that our Bearcat, staffed by the contract emergency response team, it's got two dudes in it. The other four guys were in a reinforced building inside the compound when the when the bomb went off because um, they rotated through the Bearcat during the day and night. So they pulled up in front of our building and they are looking right down the angle of attack, like right up the axis of attack that they followed. And that first dude eats like 15 or 20 rounds from a 240. Um, and he is what in law enforcement, uh, we use technical terminology and call DRT dead right there. Um, he was very clearly dead right there. Um, so the other six little honey badgers hunker down in our, uh, vehicle screening area. And that's where you learn the hard way that, um, any security infrastructure that's designed to stop, like, you know, whatever they say, like a six ton truck traveling at 55 miles an hour, it's awesome cover and concealment. Um, so those guys hunker down. One of them at some point sees one of our third country national guards in the CAC and he click clacks his S vest uh, because every one of the little shady honey badgers is wearing an S vest. Um, well, you know, of course, the compound access control point, they're all like, you know, heavily armored. So, you know, our TCN in there is fine. And this guy just totally blows his face off. So that's good. So now we're down to five attackers. Um, and uh, they're hunkered down there and it takes about 30 minutes to kill all of them. Um, a lot of the work gets done by the guys we had on the roof. So we had four guys on the roof. One of them took like a plexiglass window to the face and was down with a concussion. Um, he was okay later, but he's down with a concussion. But the other three guys were on the other side of the roof. So they relocate and set up two belt feds and a marksman rifle. And, uh, you know, if, if you'll pardon the term, they start doing God's work. Um, 
and laying down some pretty serious hate. Um, we had our medic, uh, our medic ran to the sound of the gunfire um, from the, uh, the little compound office as soon as the V-bid went off. Because he said, hey, V-bid, there's casualties. You know, he was thinking it was a V-bid attack, not a complex attack. So he ran down there to render assistance and he got stuck behind uh, some connexes. Um, so he's hunkered down behind some connexes. And in what I call one of the coolest things to happen, um, and, and I want to give a shout out to the contractors, you know, everybody likes to talk about the guys who were like you former SEALs, you know, former, you know, former special forces, former Rangers, you're this guy, former 10th Mountain Division, you know, he was an, he was an army infantry guy, did a, you know, did like two combat tours, I think. Um, but like, you know, wasn't a Ranger, you wasn't special forces, you know, wasn't some high speed, low drag dude. Um, uh, awesome though. And I should say too, fabulous hair. Um, but uh, he he gets together with three dudes um, to go extract the medic, right? So uh, they get over to where these vehicles are parked next to their office, and um, they're right around the corner from the vehicle entry control point where these five remaining attackers are pinned down. So he chalk talks a plan. Uh, the three shooters are going to go grab the medic and pull him back. And he climbs on top of a land cruiser and using geometric progression or slicing the pie around the edge of their, you know, hardened concrete building. He's got a 249 in shoulder fire and he cuts the, he cuts that, uh, you know, slices the pie there, comes around the corner and just starts laying hate into the vehicle screening area where the shooters are. Um, you know, dumps his whole 200 round uh, drum magazine. Um, the other three guys run, grab the medic, pull him out. I mean, it was like a really super cool Rambo moment. Um, awesome guy, super cool stuff. Um, you know, our uh, ARSO was out with the guard force. Um, he was on the wall. The contractors actually called it the battle of the wall. Because when I first talked about the compound like that, you know, the cell phone, if you cut it in half, there was a wall right there. So they're all lined up like on a parapet, peeking over the wall, shooting. Um, although, to be honest, most of them, I mean, everybody's pretty much getting M4. So all they're doing is making themselves feel better um, because all of the most of the real work is being done by people with belt feds or marksman rifle. Um, so uh, the wall takes around like right in front of him, um, just misses him. Uh, I guess I was I was actually in our lobby securing the doors and a couple of rounds just missed me. Um, we later uh, showed him to a civilian that came out with DOD. Uh, he was uh, had had gone through training to be a small arms expert. And apparently they were like 50 cal uh, armor piercing incendiary. Um, he there's supposed to be some sniper out there with a, you know, with some Soviet rifle Um and so they they think that that guy was at our attack, uh, supporting it from one of the buildings across the street, uh, because based on some of the holes we had punched in our stuff, I mean, this round, you know, it smoked straight through our ballistic glass. Um, I mean, didn't even slow down. Uh, so they were hitting us with some pretty, pretty good stuff. Um, <clears throat> we, um, we know there were support by fire positions in some of the buildings, uh, we actually, a couple of days later, had a visit from the chancellor of Harat University, which was across the street. And, and he brought us a bunch of uh, 7.62 uh, NATO bullets, 
that were all deformed um that that you know were inside like one of the rooms in the university and he's like are these yours we were like no they're not ours they were absolutely the attackers um but it's it's one of the things i learned you know not having been in the military having just been a cop is that if somebody shoots at you with a machine gun from a window and you put about a hundred rounds of 762 NATO from a belt fed back into that window, they stop shooting at you from that window. Um, we didn't recover any bodies, but frankly, by the time we sent anybody over to go look at them, um, they had plenty of time to pull people out. Um, so, you know, after about 30 minutes, we kill all the attackers, you know, they're all dead. Um, but we're still taking some intermittent fire, right? Um, <clears throat> so as soon as the attack uh, cooked off, you know, we called for support. We called for help. Uh, the first people to show up took about nine. Well, that's not true. The, the Afghan National Police showed up in about an hour. Um, at one point, they drove by, but they literally drove by and just kept going. They, they were like, we don't want any part of this. Um, so after an hour, they showed up. Uh, but apparently there were still some bad guys in some of the apartment buildings because they took rounds. Um, but then, unfortunately, st they started shooting at us because um, I guess they thought that we were the ones shooting at them. So I wound up on a pretty tense phone call with the provincial chief of police where I basically had to threaten to kill all of his police officers uh, to get them to stop shooting at us uh, because, you know, that was kind of no bueno. Um, so they stopped shooting at us because they didn't want us to kill them. And as there's a time for diplomacy and a time for less diplomacy. Um, about 30 minutes after that, the SEALs showed up uh, and they brought a company of Afghan commandos with them. Uh, so we had a SEAL detachment and then a company of Afghan commandos. And at that point, everybody beat feet because, um, you know, nobody wanted a piece of that. Um, so the SEALs rolled in and they really helped us. Uh, you know, get some of our guards out of the guard towers because the doors had been deformed by the force of the blast. Uh, their their EOD guy helped me uh, clear the UXO. We had a bunch of unexploded ordnance on the compound, and we couldn't bring in helicopters <clears throat> to evacuate our diplomats until we cleared out the UXO. Um, so, uh, and I think it's totally fine to say this at this point. Uh, so they, they pulled a funny on me. Um, they said, I said, okay, man, how, how quickly can we clear this UXO? And he goes, well, there's two ways we can do it. We can do deliberate clearance where we break everything down into grids and, you know, go through bit by bit, make sure everything's clear, but that's going to take a while. Or we can just blow it all in place. And I was like, okay, well, how long will it take to blow it all in place? And he's like, oh man, I have this set up in like 20 minutes. I'm like, okay, so if you blow it all in place, have it done in like 20 minutes, and then I can bring in helos to start evacuating people. Yes. It's like, all right, do it. He's like, all right, great. So you're approving it? I was like, yes, I'm approving it. So flash forward like three or four months and we had an army EOD guy there. And he's like, man, you guys did a bip. It's famous. Everybody in theaters talking about it in EOD. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, like, yeah, I mean, yeah, we blew it in place. We bipped it, but what's the big deal? And he goes, oh man, because, you know, the bodies are supposed to be buried within 24 hours. Um, it's so sensitive to do a BIP that we can't do it without having approval from the IJC commander or higher. So we need a three-star or better in order to do it. So we just never get to do it anymore. And I'm like, holy crap. Well, <laughs> so like we eventually got the SEAL report and you look at it and it says like senior State Department official on scene authorized BIP, you know? And I'm like, I was in FS3. Um, 
I was not a three star. Um, but uh, anyway, we got it all cleared. Um, the guys were super useful. Um, and, and I'll be honest, you know, like, I don't remember a whole lot of it because I, you know, I got knocked on my gourd and it's, it's iffy. I've had people tell me stuff, you know, like, I guess, you know, like I was out there with the seal joint terminal air controller, you know, like I threw smoke, I brought in the Casivac kilos and stuff. I don't remember it. Um, I guess I was out there at one point and got shot at. I don't really remember that much. Um, what I remember is slapping people in the back. Um, they would ask me, sir, can I do blah, blah, blah? And be like, yes, sounds good. Go do it. Um, and that was pretty much it. Um, but people did awesome work. We defeated the attack. Um, yay us. Yeah. I remember at like 11 AM, uh, one of the contractors brought me from our, uh, our DFAC because our dining facility, which got blown up. Um, he brought me a piece of coffee cake and a Red Bull and it was like amazing. Um, but uh, for me, everything's pretty iffy. Uh, we got all the diplomats lined up. We got them evac on helicopters to the NATO base. Uh, the only diplomatic personnel who stayed at the time was our consul and our management officer and, and our IT guy. And he stayed the whole time, the IT guy. Um, but, uh, you know, <clears throat> we um, we got them out. And I remember it was like sometime in the afternoon and I had one foot up on the van and the van, it turned out, had about 400 pounds of explosives in it. Um, so it had, it had blown up. I guess the driver like set a fuse and then beat feet because he wanted to live. Um, and I'm sitting there with my foot up on it and I'm looking around going, I'm in the middle of the street. Where's my helmet? Wonder where my rifle is. Why am I out here? And it was just kind of like I woke up and I turned around and there were these three uh, third country national guards in this triangle with their rifles up. And I'm like, huh, that's interesting. So I, I went back inside. Of course, my helmet, and my rifle were sitting on my desk. And I later found the deputy guard force commander. And he's like, yeah, I told those guys to follow you because you were out there on the street taking photos and talking to people and you were going to get smoked. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> I am very glad that I didn't get smoked. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, it was awesome. You know, the support we got from our contractors. Under the contract, we were supposed to have a six-person QRF. Um, when the QRF rolled in 10 minutes after the attack kicked off, it had 15 dudes. And it was 15 because that was literally all they could squeeze into the Bearcat and the Suburban. Um, if they could have squeezed 20 dudes in there, they would have. Um, you know, like everybody wanted to come. Everybody wanted to help fight. Um, you know, and we started uh, right off the bat, we started rebuilding. Um they brought in a platoon of Marines from 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines to reinforce us. Um, so we had a reinforced Marine platoon, and those guys were awesome. Uh, they got the battalion CO, came out with them. He was really cool. Um, I think we're on like LinkedIn together still. Uh, the officer in charge of the, of the Navy SEAL unit, we're on LinkedIn. Really, really great guy. Um, the uh, <clears throat> We started uh, our management office, immediately started calling people they contracted with. Um, we got the US 4A base was demobilizing. They sent us some empty HESCOs. So we started dropping the HESCOs at the front because this 2,500 pound truck bomb just basically obliterated our Southern perimeter, right? So everything's wide open to the street. Um, so that day we had them start dropping HESCOs. We also had a Bearcat tow truck, pretty cool. So we used the tow truck to move some land cruisers and other armored vehicles to block our vehicle barriers. 
uh, because all of our vehicle barriers were down. Uh, the hydraulics had been shot through. We kind of shot through them all. Whoops. Um, you know, so we, you know, we started getting stuff set back up, trying to get our cameras back up. And then it just turned into a big rebuilding project. Um, we did some really cool stuff. Um, we were super, I'll say forward leaning because forward leaning sounds better than aggressive. There was a compound next door to us on the east. We literally took it over. Uh, the US-4A base had tons of HESCOs. So once we were finished HESCOing out the front of our compound, we started HESCOing that too. And when the owner came out and complained, we basically just told him to pound sand um, that we were going to HESCO it off so nobody could attack us from that side. Uh, we had an area to our west that had originally been designed with some tank traps, but it was uh, through digging them in the dirt. And it was pretty flat, uh, you know, a year and a half later. So we worked with DS and tried to come up with a project, put anti-RAM stuff out there. And they said it'd be $250,000 in nine months. So we spent $30,000 on building uh, basically one meter flower pots. So it turns out if you build a one meter concrete flower pot and fill it full of dirt, and then you connect them all with chain, it's pretty good anti-RAM. And that whole project for like, I don't even know, 150 yards of that stuff was like $30,000. And I think we got it done in a week. Um, I mean, we just, we started getting T-walls and dropping T-walls. Um, we actually took an extra 10 yards of the street. It literally went like right up to the street. Uh, we wound up having to give some of it back to the Afghan government, but they had to tell us to do it. Um, after about two days, the platoon of Marines got relieved in place by, uh, let's see, I've got the unit here, um, Delta Company, uh, 1-5 Cav. So we had a, the whole company, 116 soldiers, um, from the second brigade combat team. And, uh, they came out there and set up with us. Uh, there was a Guamanian national guard unit down at the base that brought us about 14 Matt V's, um, uh, Matt V's better than Bearcats, you know? So now instead of like one M240 on a Bearcat, we had like 14, you know, Ma Deuces and M240s, you know, on top of, you know, Matt V's and nobody was going to hit us. Um, you know, the day after the attack, uh, the deputy secretary, Ash Carter, came out for a visit. Um, that was kind of cool. At one point, he actually stepped on, uh, on I, I don't know how to put this nicely, on some man flesh. He had these like little cool tan, like desert tan shuka boots. And like he stepped in a, like part of some dude's leg or something. And it was just kind of funny because, you know, he's like, oh, like trying to wipe it off in the grass. Um you know, because when we blew those bodies in place, I mean, stuff just went everywhere. Um, it was it was kind of a crazy environment to be living in. Uh, you know, all the AC was out. It was 100 plus degrees every day. Um, all the windows in the front of the building were blown out. Half the windows in the back of the building were blown out. Um, we had a huge ridgeline behind us. And apparently the shockwave blew through the building, hit the ridgeline and then bounced back. Um, you know, it, so it was it was a whole big thing. You know, started a construction project with OBO to do a rebuilding. They decided this time they'd make the dining facility and some other portions of the building forced entry ballistic resistant. Um, what that meant was we wound up dining, I called it alfresco, um, for several months because, you know, they didn't put in new windows because they were going to put them in ballistic, but that took a really long time. Um, so they wound up putting up plywood and plastic sheeting 
Um, so we had fresh air dining for a long time. Um, and it turned into a construction site. Uh, and, you know, Delta 15 CAV was replaced by Apache 49 CAV. And Apache 49 CAV was replaced by Delta 18 CAV. And then Delta 18 CAV was replaced by uh, Bravo Company, 2nd Battalion, 5th uh, 504 Parachute Infantry Regiment. Um, and I got really used to working with the military. Um, you know, we they had a one-kilometer ops box around the consulate. And they were under our tactical control. So it was a really neat situation. You know, I, I learned that, uh, and you're welcome to correct me if I'm wrong, but I learned that, you know, if you want to look like an officer, you know, and you're you're acting RSO and you're running an intel briefing, uh, you just stand there with a cup of coffee and you sip, you look super confident. You have one, one semi-intelligent question to ask the first sergeant. You uh, so first sergeant, that ISR we got today, is that armed or unarmed? Armed, sir. All right, good stuff. Carry on. And that's it. And then at the end of it, you just say something motivating, like, you know, all right, guys, sounds good. Let's go out there and make America proud. You know, and that's it. That's like, that's all you do. And as long as you have the coffee mug, it, everybody's like, wow, he's so squared away. Um, but uh, that was pretty much it. I mean, we, I will say we continued to enable engagement. Um you know, Paul was very supportive. You know, they actually let some diplomats stay. They moved back into Camp Arena to the NATO base. Um, they decided to rebuild. Um, you know, we were an experiment in expeditionary diplomacy, and they really wanted the experiment to be successful. Um, but at the end of the day, without an enduring U.S. military presence, they just really couldn't do it, you know, um, because without that military support, there was just no way for us to do it. And, you know, I'll tell you, one of the things we really ran into, you know, the military is there under status of forces agreement. So when we had the military with us, <clears throat> if we saw somebody across the street in an apartment building with binoculars, a cell phone and taking notes, you know, we could tell the military, they go over there with one of their cat two interpreters, knock on the door. Hey, what's up? Who are you? Like, give us your name. Give us your info. Like, let's check your biometrics. You'll run you against the database. See if you've ever been reported anywhere else doing suspicious stuff. If we don't have the military, we call the Afghan police. They might show up. They might not show up. If they do show up, they might go talk to the people. They might not talk to the people. If they do talk to the people, they might tell us about it. They might not tell us about it. And if they do tell us about it, what they're going to say is everything is fine. It was nothing. Um, <clears throat> you know, and that's that's going to be it. So. You know, it, it was it was it was really interesting seeing some of the differences that we got there with the military support. Um, <clears throat> you know, so some other things we saw, you know, there were restrictions on the type of weapons we could use, you know, the type of weapons we had access to. Um, there were a lot of range issues in Afghanistan. You know, like if you're we didn't have this pop up, but they had it happen in Kabul. You know, if you're taking fire from a thousand meters away, you know, like how do you engage that safely? Do you just sit and take it? Well, you know, what if the Afghans don't want to deal with it? You know, you contact the U.S. military, you know, waiting for them to respond as you sit there and twiddle your thumbs. Um, so, you know, like that's something we'd talked about. And we had basically just decided that we would sortie with the Bearcats and then take them out ourselves. Um, luckily, none of that ever happened. But we did a bunch of stuff. We continued to engage. We continued to support trips. Um you know, finished out the rest of my tour. Day before my tour ended on April 11th, I left on April 12th from Herat. 
April 11th, the Afghan National Police um, actually stopped a truck bomb, had 1,100 pounds of uh, homemade explosives in it, um, along with the usual assortment of like rockets and anti-tank mines and, you know, all the, all the stuff they'd throw in there. Um, and they actually stopped it. When they questioned the driver, he's like, I'm headed for the U.S. consulate. Um, one of the ARSOs there actually went and, and uh, interviewed the guy with one of our FSN investigators. Um, I didn't go because I was literally packing because I was leaving the next day. Um, but I'll tell you, the facility they faced in April of 2014 was completely different. I mean, the slat fencing had been replaced by T-walls. Um, you know, we had a Dyna tower down in the front along the street. We had offset gates. Everything had been designed to redirect the force of a blast. I mean, it was awesome. Uh, the embassy, frankly, kind of hated it because it looked like a super maximum security prison from like some post-apocalyptic future. But we loved it. I mean, like it looked like the last place in the world you'd want to hit, um, you know, but there was some other stuff, too. We got good support from RSO. Um, I will say it was funny. I got, you know, so I got investigated. Um, they investigated the shooting because it was a use of force. You know, so they, I mean, when I say it was me, they investigated everybody. Um, so they interviewed me. And the first question is like, how many rounds were fired? And I'm like, I, I, I don't know. It's like, well, ballpark it. I was like, okay. Um, eight to 10,000 plus or minus 2000. And they're like, wait, wait, what? I'm like, yeah, eight to 10,000. I'm like, I, I know how many rounds we put out at each position. I know how many rounds were left after the attack. Um, so yeah, I'm going to go with probably eight to 10,000. <laughs> you know, it's just like you say it and then you look at their face and they're just like trying to work through. Um, at one point, we had an Italian fighter jet do a flyover that we thought was another V-bid. And that was funny. Um, at one point, we had Embassy Kabul. One of my buddies there was an ARSO called me on the phone, tell me we had an AC-130 overhead uh, providing support. So like that, that was really cool. We had an AC-130 doing figure eights overhead. You know, we got a, a SEAL platoon. You know, now we got Marines. I'm like, yes, if you're going to hit us again, hit us now. Um, but it was a really good experience. You know, I mean, unfortunately, you know, I, I will say it was it was a tragedy because we lost seven local guards, seven Afghan local guards, uh, one interpreter. The interpreter was an awesome dude. Um, you know, I think he was 25. He was pro-American. Um, awesome little dude. Uh, we lost one Afghan national police officer, but they were all killed in the initial truck bomb. Uh, the four third country national guards that were shot all recovered. Um, and that was it, you know, everything else, all the hate that got thrown at us, everybody else was okay. The worst we had was the one concussion and some glass, you know, some, where some Americans got cut by glass and that was it, you know, our SPS who was on the console, um, he had her down in our safe haven in like 60 seconds after the attack. You know, everybody did their jobs exactly the way we drilled it. And it is frankly the anti-Benghazi. Um, everything went well. We were well-resourced, uh, well-trained, well-prepared and equipped, and we took care of business. Um, and I, and I, I told you one anecdote before we got started. So I'll, I'll throw it out there because it is funny. Um, but, you know, the initial attack, it blew up our dining facility. It was really sad. And our one espresso machine was in there. Um, <clears throat> You know, so we didn't have an espresso machine. So uh, there was this federal excess property list from all the base closures that were going on around Afghanistan at the time. And I talked to one of my friends who was an ARSO in logistics in uh, at the embassy in Kabul because I saw a, 
this Tiger espresso machine. It was listed at like $15,000, but we could get it for free uh, if we put in a requisition for it. So I talked to my buddy and he's like, hey, I'm I'm going down to Kandahar to pick some stuff up for the office. I'll see if I can get you that espresso machine. And like a week later, um, I get this espresso machine delivered. So don't know what happened to it after I left. Um, but at least for the for the time I was there, I know that, you know, I, the contractors and you know, all the soldiers who were who were posted with us really appreciated that espresso machine. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, after it was over with, you know, of course, it happened uh, right during bidding season. Um, so I was supposed to send my uh, my career development officer an update, but I didn't. So like the next week, I sent him an email going, hey, sorry, I didn't send you that email I was supposed to. I, my morning got interrupted by a complex terrorist attack. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, DS told us specifically that they would take care of us on our onward assignments. And it took them, you know, about two weeks to start backpedaling. Um, but uh, what I got back, and I, I do appreciate it. I want to sound ungrateful. They said, you know, if a post picks you as one of their top five, we will consider letting you go to that assignment. Because at this point, you know, I was, I'd done three consecutive overseas tours and I was looking to do a fourth because I wanted to be a regional security officer. You know, I've been an ARSO at three posts now. I wanted to be an RSO. Um, it just so happened that I knew a bunch of people, our incoming consul, uh, he already had his linked assignment to be the DCM in Vienna. Our IT guy knew somebody. And then my management officer at a previous post was classmates with the deputy chief of mission in Bratislava. The deputy chief of mission in Bratislava was going to be the management counselor at U.S. Embassy Vienna, where he's going to be working for my consul in Herat. Um, so they all put in some calls for me, um, you know, said they told the DCM that I was awesome. I never got interviewed, so I assumed I didn't have a chance at the job. And then out of the blue, I got notified by the panel that I had been picked as the next RSO for Bratislava, Slovakia. You know, so did um, did language training. It was 10 months long, got a 3-3 in Slovak, and then went out to Bratislava with my family. Um, had a really nice vacation, took five weeks of leave in Istanbul before we packed out and left. Um, had a nice vacation in the U.S., uh, did language training. Um, while I was in language training in the U.S., uh, I got called into DS headquarters, and in one of their quarterly award ceremonies, I got a, a uh, was included in the Harzim Award uh, for the attack on the consulate in Herat. Um, I, I will say, though, that so all of that happened, the attack happened uh, right before we went into a government shutdown. So here we are in a blown up building living with the military, you know, not able to make any overtime because there's a government shutdown. And because that's when they put in the award, the award couldn't come with any cash. Um, so, you know, it's like, hey, thanks. For, thanks for your service. But <laughs> yeah, but not really. Um, so it was an interesting time. So, but whatever. So, you know, go to Bratislava. Um, Bratislava was a really good time. Um, you know, had some stuff go on. Uh, my assistant RSO, uh, the first one, really good guy. Um, he worked with our consular chief and we identified a Slovak uh, travel agency that was basically uh, sending students to the U.S. on summer work and travel, um, but then hooking them up with jobs and in some cases, diverting them to a, uh, an organized crime group that was sending some of the young ladies that went to various strip clubs um, in uh, northeastern U.S. Um, a couple of them were able to get loose. 
uh, made it to a Slovak consulate and they got emergency passports and came back to Slovakia and they actually reported it to us. So we worked with the Slovak um, National Criminal Agency, their version of the FBI, to bust the people on the Slovak side and then shared the information with the FBI, who it turns out were running a human trafficking investigation with HSI uh, out of their New York office. So that was that was pretty cool. Um, you know, help the Marines move into a new Marine house, which I'll tell you, if you ever make it there, I think it's probably the best Marine house in uh, Europe. Um, it's awesome. Uh, let's see. We had the European migration crisis, um, you know, 2015. I was there from 15 to 18. So, uh, you know, a bunch of migrants coming in, a lot of border security issues. Um, I actually, the deputy prime minister was also the minister of the interior. So I was able to go with the ambassador to some meetings with him. Um, the cost of entry was writing the political reporting cables. So it was funny. I actually wrote some political reporting cables that I did not get because they weren't tagged with anything security related. So I had to ask somebody to forward me the copies of my own reporting cables. Um, but the Slovaks were assuming the presidency of the European Union Council. So, you know, we were asking for their help on some counterterrorism issues. Had the undersecretary for uh, DHS uh, for uh, intelligence come out. It was Frank Taylor. And Frank Taylor had been the assistant secretary of DS in the early 2000s. And he said a quote that stuck with me the whole time because uh, we wound up spending like three days together. And he goes, no other federal law enforcement agency asks as much of its people as DS. Uh, and I, I think that's true. Um, you know, but got to do some good stuff out there. Um, we actually uh, had a home invasion. Um, and uh, the first people there, uh, it was me and uh, my ARSO. As I as I was responding to the home of uh, it was a senior individual, um, my RSO was walking to work because we all walked to work, and I picked him up and we went in and we cleared the house. Uh, we made sure that the resident, it was just one resident, was fine, and you know we cleared the house. Um, they had already left. Uh, they basically came in, rifled through some papers, uh, basically just took some papers. It was, I mean, it it was clearly counterintelligence related, um, but. Uh, you know, it's just it's just a sign that, you know, you can be in somewhere nice with, you know, relatively low crime in the Euro in the European Union and you still have stuff happen. Um, you know, I used to say we took the Marines out, did a bunch of drills, um, you know, did a bunch of shooting, uh, did a bunch of room entry training. And I used to say that, you know, I know you probably won't ever use these skills here, but when you go to your next post in Africa or maybe a high threat post, I want to make sure you're set up for success. Um you know, like I'd only ever shot wearing a gas mask um, at the University of Georgia PD. So we deployed gas and we shot wearing gas masks, you know, using shoulder weapons. Um, we did a bunch, actually had the Slovaks bring out APCs and we shot from on top of them to simulate shooting from like, you know, a, a second story window. Um, so and the Slovaks were great to work with. Their law enforcement was awesome. Um, I'd meet with, you know, the head of the Slovak National Police um, routinely. Uh, it was it was a good time. Um, we had a counterintelligence investigation. In the course of the counterintelligence investigation, I brought out a polygraph examiner from the State Department. Uh, we used it to, uh, how I put this, uh, remove the threat. Uh, we terminated individual's employment. We reported it to the locals um, and had their assistance in helping us mitigate that, that stuff. Um, this exposure to polygraph wound up leading to my next assignment. 
Um, I was going to anti-terrorism assistance since that's something that I'd done a lot with both in Nigeria and in Afghanistan. Uh, but then DS advertised a new civil service 1811 position as the branch chief and program manager for a polygraph unit. Uh, they were standing up a new unit. Uh, well, they had a unit with contractors, but they were going to start training the first special agents to be polygraph examiners. Um, I thought it was really interesting chance to, you know, start up a new thing within DS. Um, I put in and wound up getting hired. Um, so it, it happened so fast that I actually PCS on my original orders, not my like resignation orders. Um, so, you know, get back to DC. Now I do polygraph, um, <clears throat> you know, met people in the community, had to learn the program, went to polygraph training at the National Center for Credibility Assessment at Fort Jackson. Uh, it was a really good experience. Uh, learned a lot. You know, at the time, there were 29 agencies that used polygraph. I think now it's 32. Um, State Department started using it in 04 to vet local national employees in Iraq uh, because you can't run background checks. You know, you can't just call your local police station and go, hey, does this person have a criminal history? Because there is no criminal history. There's no centralized computer system. They don't have records. Uh, same thing in Afghanistan, same thing in a few other countries. Uh, so we, they expanded its use. Um, at one point, we were running, uh, you know, 3,000, 3,500 polygraph exams a year. So it was, it was actually a lot. Um, you know, so we had a pretty big program, um, started staffing it up. I'll, I'll tell you, though, it was a constant battle. Every polygraph exam for a department employee had to be approved at the undersecretary level. Um, and it was really hard. So if, if so, for example, Cody, if you wanted to go do a detail at an agency um, for diplomatic security, like say you wanted to go over to construction security at the office of the director of national intelligence as the DS representative, you have to have a polygraph exam. You want to do the job. You know it requires a polygraph. You cannot go do that polygraph without a signed approval from the undersecretary for management. Um, it was a lot of bureaucracy. And there's irony too, because I found out that the Bureau of, uh, of uh, International Narcotics and Law Enforcement, INL, was actually funding other countries to have polygraph programs. For example, uh, in order to fight corruption, you know, they helped a several police forces in the Caribbean stand up polygraph units. So I'm like, so INL is spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to set up polygraph programs for other countries' police forces, but but we can't do it. Um, then I found out there's actually a federal law that was passed in 1987 that said every diplomatic security service employee was supposed to have a counterintelligence polygraph. Um, and, you know, counterintelligence polygraph, I mean, we're not talking a full scope like some of the intelligence agencies do or some of the other law enforcement agencies. I mean, this is just like, are you a terrorist? Are you a spy? You know, um, and I passed one. I had to pass one to take the job. You know, I went over to the FBI. They ran one on me. I passed. And I'm like, if I can spend almost 10 years overseas where I'm liaising with security and intelligence contacts from other foreign countries and I can pass this test, anybody should be able to pass it. Um, you Because know, I have shared sensitive information, but I've done it for the U.S. government. It's all been approved. Um, but anyway, long story short, I wound up going to Afghanistan to deploy. I was out there in 2019. And I'll tell you, it made me really sad when I saw what went down. Um, but in 2019, you know, in 2013, when I arrived, 
one of the NIFO agents I'd worked with, um, NIFO being New York field office, great guy. Um, he came and picked me up in a Hilux. Like I landed in a plane. Uh, I went through security. Like I went through passport control. I went and got my bug, my baggage from baggage claim. I walked outside the front of the Kabul airport and I looked around and I said, oh, there he is. You know, I walked down to a truck, threw my stuff in the back of the truck and hopped in. You know, and he drove me to the embassy. Um, when I left 13 months later, yeah, I put in a motor pool request. Put in a motor pool request, an Afghan driver loaded me in a, a, in a, a Land Cruiser with a couple other people, drove me out to the airport, um, dropped me off in front of the airport. I went in, checked my baggage, went through passport control, waited in the lounge. Actually, there wasn't a lounge. So I waited in the, you know, just the waiting area and then boarded a plane and took off. Um, 2019, we land, they stop uh, short of the gate. They offload the uh, U.S. diplomatic personnel. We get in an armored van. They drive us to the embassy air compound. Um, at the embassy air compound, we get manifested for a helicopter flight. And they fly us on a helicopter from embassy air compound to um, Resolute Support, because Resolute Support was adjacent to the embassy. It used to be the NATO base. Now they call it Resolute Support, or then they called it Resolute Support. But uh, we landed at the HLZ, and then we walked into our check-in. And I'm like, <clears throat> okay, here we are five years after I left, and we can't drive the 10-minute drive, maybe 10 minutes, from the airport to the embassy. Like, things have clearly gotten bad. Um and that was really kind of when I knew that, that you know, things were going downhill there. You know, at the point at which you couldn't just drive that. I mean, you know, in, in Baghdad, I mean, you know, there was no point where people didn't. I mean, we drove around Irish, you know, like you just you drove it. It's what you did. Um, you know, so the point at which they couldn't drive that in Kabul, you know, it kind of tell, told me that things were in bad shape. Uh, but, you know, I got to go back. I got to see things. I got to meet some of my same people uh, that I'd worked with in Herat. One of the things I'd done when, before I left was help them get jobs at the embassy. Um, so that was that was good. It was nice closure. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, a couple of years after that, uh, I wound up leaving for another agency. Um, but uh, that, in a nutshell, is, uh, you know, my DS career um, and, you know, my time in Herat. Uh, it was interesting. Um, I saw a lot of I'll plug your book again. A lot of the same themes from your book, you know, you work with great people, uh, you really get to make an impact. Um, you know, the things that you do, most Americans won't ever know about, um, but you really do a lot out there in the field to really make, you know, make things better, uh, make the world a safer place for, you know, the average American. Um, so I really enjoyed it. Uh, a lot of it was really the good people that I work with, not just in diplomatic security, but in the foreign service writ large. I still have a ton of friends, uh, both in diplomatic security and the foreign service, um, and tons of respect for everything that they do. Um, but what I do now is pretty cool too, and I enjoy it. Damn, man, you uh, you make a podcast host's life really easy. <laughs> no, and I love it. I love it. I tell people that I say, hey, they don't want to hear from me; they want to hear from you. And uh, but you know, the way you you convey everything is like you, it's very inform. It's it's entertaining. It's informative. You know, I have a, a significant amount of folks that are aspiring DS agents. Of course, we have some active that listen to it, uh, some some retired, and there's some people just interested in, you know, I don't know, global affairs or security or whatever. And uh, I think 
I, I have a high confidence this is probably the most impactful one for those future agents that are looking at kind of the the versatility of the job and you know what what it entails. Uh, you tell them in a way that's it's very engaging. Um, I, I uh, you know, I, one of the themes I I, I present. So I, I do a, a thing where I, I, I help out uh, aspiring agents. You know, I, I do mock interviews and, and testing and, and practice, and, uh, and uh, we've had some good success. And one of the things, I, some some of the themes that follow are many that you talked about here, uh, including the 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 one that I don't shut up about on my YouTube videos and things is building relationships. The 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 relationships that you have and how much they matter you know everything from nigeria when you had the security director from exxon right that that, that helps you out and, and a number of others uh that helped and the interpersonal skills that it takes to build those relationships the relationships you had to get you to bratislava for example uh there are a number of them there and uh i think that you know i, I kind of the theme i've been running with is um you know you're if you're applying to this job you're applying to be a diplomat who happens to be a federal agent right a security mm-hmm. professional you're, you're a diplomat who happens to be a security professional professional as well and i think that's one of the better ways to go about it because i mean most of your time sounds like was overseas and uh doing both diplomacy uh with with security work um awesome man finally got to get you on yeah we have a go ahead no and and i i do want to add um yeah i mean you know i've always believed like if you take care of other people they'll take care of you um and that goes for everything i mean it goes for the people that work for you it goes for your peers, it goes for your supervisor, but it also goes for external contacts. You know, I mean, just, uh, you know, when I was in Bratislava, um, we had uh, a guy show up at the front gate with his uh, mother, right? And he's in the police inspection service. So I call my FSN investigator, you know, my, like my senior local employee. And I go, hey, is, <clears throat> you know, is, is this guy one of our good contacts? Because he's asking if he can take his mother to the concert section. You know, she's older um, and he just wants to be able to walk in with her. And he goes, oh, you know what? He's been one of our contacts for years, but he's in the police inspection service. Um, He's really out of favor right now and they're trying to get him to retire. So we really don't need to do anything for him. And I said, look, man, if he's been helpful to us in the past, I'm going to help him today. So I called down to the concert section. I said, look, I just want to let him come in and, you know, to help his mother. But he'll, you know, he's not going to go up to the window. He'll stay seated. He's basically just going to walk her in and then walk her out. Um, and they're like, yeah, it's totally fine. So I go down, I get him, I walk him through, or I walk him through, you know, through security. I take him in. Um, I sit and chat with him in my bad Slovak, um, you know, while his mom's at the window doing her thing. Um, you know, then I walk him out. Yeah, I thank him for all of his help. Um, three months later, he was the head of the Slovak National Police. Yeah. Now there you I go. Didn't, I didn't yeah. do it for that. You know, I did it because if somebody's helped us, I want to help them, whether they're going to help us in the future or not. Um, but you never know. And you know, that person you help, you know, today, you could wind up working for him next year. Um, you really never know. Um and if I could give out one bit of advice to, uh, you know, both junior agents or aspiring agents, you know, people, everybody will tell you what you should do for your career. Um, I will tell you my experience is that anything anyone tells you about your career or bidding, by the time they tell it to you is probably already wrong um, because things have probably already changed, you know, like since they last went through it. Um, so really just like, you do what you want to do. 
and they'll tell you, oh, you can't specialize. Um, but as you'll get from some of the other, you know, some of the other podcasts you've done, you can absolutely specialize. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you've had people on here like Steve Silva, who did most of his career in high threat posts, you know, or Kevin Warner, who wound up, you know, wound up getting sucked into the CI world. You know, like you can specialize, like don't let people tell you you can't, um, you know, so like make your career your own and you can do what you want to with it. Um, and that that really would be my my advice. Good tip. And that's usually the question. My last question yeah. I ask is, what would you have, what would you say to aspiring agents? So, you know, I don't think I had to ask you one question uh, in this podcast. Maybe maybe one or two I asked about the river in uh, in Nigeria. Uh, so, but yeah, man, you hit so much in this. So awesome, dude. Thanks. Thanks for having, you know, thanks for coming, uh, coming on. Uh, I got to get the guy who connected us on whenever he retires. And I know he, <laughs> he's a supporter and he wants to, his name's come up, I think in two yeah. different podcasts. Um, and so, uh, you know, I look forward to it, but um, I would, yeah, I appreciate you coming on, man. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to cut out here, uh, but don't hang up because we'll chat here in a second. All right. I appreciate it, Cody. All right. Thanks. Man. Thank you, Dylan, for coming on the podcast and sharing your experiences with the listeners. I know this will add a ton of value for those aspiring DS agents and for those who just like a good story. Um, okay, so what else do we have? Um, if this is the first time listening to the podcast, uh, this is like episode 20, 22, I don't know, something like that. Um, go back and listen to the beginning because they have changed uh, we have uh, evolved since the first podcast, and I think you will enjoy all of those uh, as well. Um, also, if you are interested in becoming a DS Special Agent, I put out a number of resources to help you achieve your career goals. Um, and so a uh, couple different things. Number one, uh, YouTube. Uh, it's free. Cody Perron, search it. Um, and I put out almost 40 or so videos about uh, working uh, and living uh, uh, as a DS special agent, living overseas, working out of the field offices. Uh, and what I do is I answer a bunch of questions that individuals uh, might have sent me uh, through different social media mediums, uh, whether it's other YouTube videos or um, uh, on Instagram or Facebook, etc. So go check that out. I think it'll add some value for you in your career pursuits. Uh, I do have a Patreon. It has different levels. You can go from uh, so Patreon is a subscription service, um, and uh, you know you can. There's a number of things that I do on it, but you can contribute five dollars. Uh, it helps pay the bills. It helps uh, you know uh, take care of some of the monetary uh, needs in producing the podcast and doing all the other things I'm doing. So if you're interested in that, uh, I post you know additional stories on there uh, that that didn't make the book. Uh, uh, my book, Agents Unknown. Um, and so I post some thought-provoking articles, global security, uh, um, personal safety, uh, and you can upgrade to different levels. We do have levels where I might bring on a virtual guest, a VIP guest, and we have virtual happy hours. Um, you get to network with people. Um, but there's also levels where I support you in your, uh, career goals, uh, doing mock interviews for the DS oral assessment, other otherwise known as the BEX. Um, I also, uh, you know, review um, your writing samples, our, our, our DSAT uh, 
you know, supports you in the DSAT in a number of different ways. Uh, that's the Diplomatic Security Special Agent Assessment Test, something like that. Um, but check it out. <clears throat> it's patreon.com, off the X underscore Inc, I-N-C. And you'll see the different uh, levels that you can get, you can go to, and I'll support you in that. But it's a good time. Uh, we've had some great guests that come and speak and uh, a number of different uh, activities that we have going on. And you can get it for $5 if you just want to come and hang out and see all the content. Um, Facebook group, Becoming a DSS Agent, is a group I started, um, well, a couple years ago. It is made up of active special agents, former special agents, retired special agents, aspiring special agents. Um, and it's a group where you can interact and ask questions. Uh, I have group experts who are current or former special agents. Um, and you can ask questions about everything from the uh, the, the process or, or life in DS or any issues or concerns you might have. We have people that weigh in, people that experience those as well. So I think it's a great resource for you to check into if you're still, uh, you know, one, if you're interested in the job or if you're, you know, just researching the job. I think it is a, it's a valuable, uh, you know, asset to have. Um, I have an Instagram. It's called off the X underscore Inc. I've been a little busy uh, with things lately. I haven't posted as much there, but you'll find some content on there that I think you might enjoy. Um, so go check that out. Of course, we have this podcast that I mentioned uh, at the end of this a little while ago, uh, the Off the X podcast, 20-something episodes, um, and, uh, you know, get a ton of intel, intel for that. I have, I have pe- people have told me that uh, preparing for their oral assessment with the Diplomatic Security Service, which is a difficult test if you're applying to be a federal, uh, a, you know, a federal agent, any other job, special agent, it is nothing applying to this job is nothing like those. It is a unique process. I like to tell people you're applying to be a diplomat who happens to be a federal agent. Um, it's a unique process. Uh, it's intense. It's, uh, we hire some really great people. Um, and so, uh, you know, this podcast and the YouTube videos and the Facebook group, I've been told add uh, value to people, um, you know, pursuing the career. Uh, or pursuing the test, right, to, to get to the career. I know I use the word add value a lot. That's part of it because I think that's what, that's what we're here to do. So um, also my book, Agents Unknown, uh, True Stories of Life as a Special Agent in the Diplomatic Security Service, sitting at a couple hundred reviews, uh, thousands of copies sold. It's done really well. Um, I write how I talk. Pretty easy. Easy read, uh, but I think you'll enjoy it. And what it'll do? It'll add value. There you go. Uh, so... It's available on Amazon. It's available on Audible, uh, uh, iBooks, Barnes and Noble online, um, CodyParon.com. Although my website is down right now, I'm trying to get that out. I'm not so tech savvy, um, so that might take some time to get up. But if you go to Amazon or to Audible or iBooks or any of those other places, plenty of places you can get it. Um, you know that still uh, helps helps me out, and, and I'm and I'm grateful for for your support. Um, that's about it. I do have gear, uh, but I said my website's down. But if you're interested um, in uh, hats or shirts or, uh, you know, uh, patches and stickers and all kind of things I got going on, um, feel free to ping me uh, and let me know and I can send you some information uh, on that. Finally, if you like this episode, if you uh, like this podcast, I would be grateful if you would hit the like button. Hit the like button on the YouTube as well. 
um, follow, follow the podcast and, you know, uh, share it and, or send me a note. Uh, thanks again for all support. As always hit me up, let me know if I can help info at codyperron.com or DM me on, uh, my different mediums. And I will do my best to get back to you in a timely manner. If I don't reach out again, or maybe another medium, some I am more proactive on than others. Appreciate you all. Y'all have a great week. Thanks y'all.